And then the prophet was the prophet is given this uh, really good reality check. You think they're not convinced because you don't have enough proof? No, that's not the reason. Let me tell you something. Allah says to His Prophet, The Jews and the Christians will not be happy with you. With you singular. Anka, you the Prophet, they won't like you. They won't like what you have to say. Until you were to follow their legacy, their nation. Tell them the guidance of Allah, it is in fact the guidance. Before we go on, I should mention something here, it's important. You know, around the country nowadays we have kind of interfaith programs and we share with others what our faith is and we listen to what their faith is and let's all, you know, give each other a hug and sing along, etc., etc. Some of that is very good. We should understand other faiths and they should understand us. But you know, when it comes to representing, because all Muslims are in fact representatives of their messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we have a loyalty first and foremost to him. First and foremost, we are loyal to him. We're a member of his ummah. The Prophet has many wonderful qualities. Amazing, amazing father, amazing friend. Couldn't find a better leader. Couldn't find a better honest businessman. Couldn't find a more truthful person, an honest person, a wise person, a counselor, a teacher. If you look at it from every angle, you know, every role, we, we play different roles in our lives. We play the role of a father, a son, a husband, a, a youth. We play different roles, and we see a role model for each of those roles in the Prophet's life. Now, when, we, when it comes to representing the Prophet ﷺ to non-Muslims, it is great to show all of these different qualities of the Prophet. It's great. But, there's one quality of the Prophet ﷺ that he really wants you to share with others. <clears throat> there's one quality over everything else. You can share all those other qualities, but they, they should be shared for one reason. In the end, we're not believers in the Prophet because he was a great dad. We're not believers in the Prophet because he was a great husband. Those are all true. But those aren't the reason. The one thing he's asking people to believe, if he goes around and gives da'wah himself, he's not going around telling people to believe, why don't you believe that I'm honest? Why don't you believe that I can be trusted? Why don't you believe that I'm a good father? Why don't you believe I'm a good husband? Why don't you believe I'm a good leader? They already believe all that stuff. There's just one little tiny problem. One thorn. Everything else is great about him. What is that one thing? That he's a messenger. That's the one thing. He's a messenger. You will find Christians and Jews come to you and tell you they like a lot of things about the Prophet. I've met them. Except there's one thing. Shouldn't have claimed to be a Prophet. He's a great guy otherwise. Otherwise, he's a great guy. The one thing that he's asking people to believe, they will not be happy with. Why won't they be happy with you? You would wonder, the Prophet's such a nice, such a wonderful personality, such a great leader. He brought such blessings to Medina, even for the Jews and Christians, actually. Then why not like him? Because of this one thing. When we talk about the Prophet ﷺ with others, we should highlight his wonderful qualities, but never at the expense of one 
one quality, and that is that he is in fact the messenger of Allah. And that's the one point of contention, isn't it? The modern, the modern discourse and religion is, well, God is all the same. It's these prophets that make us different, so let's just not talk about them too much. Or let's just talk about the things that are in common among the prophets. They were all very kind. Okay, that's good enough. No. That's not what we're, that's not what we're here to, to deliver. That's not what the Messenger charged us with, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, they, they, these are both things that go hand in hand. So anyhow, that, that, I wanted to bring that to your attention because it will come up over and over again. Allah says, قُلْ إِنَّا هُدَى اللَّهِ هُوَ الْهُدَى Tell them, no doubt about it, the guidance of Allah, it is in fact the guidance. In other words, the Qur'an is now the way to follow. وَلَئِنِ اتَّبَعْتَ أَهْوَاءَهُمْ And if you were to follow their empty desires, بَعْدَ الَّذِي جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ after, after what came to you from knowledge. You see, instead of بَعْدَ مَا جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ It says بَعْدَ الَّذِي جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ الَّذِي is used. It's more specific. Why? Because this revelation is very clear. And it's highlighted in the word الَّذِي as opposed to مَا. مَا can be ambiguous. الَّذِي جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ مَا لَكَ مِنَ اللَّهِ مِنْ وَلِيٍ وَلَا نَصِيرٍ You will not find, Allah is talking to the Prophet, if you follow their desires at all, what are their desires in this ayah is the question. Their desires in this ayah are, just be a little bit more like us. Just be a little bit more like us. That's it. Just give in to some things we're saying. They say, لَنْ يَدْخُلَ الْجَنَّةَ إِلَّا مَنْ كَانَ هُدًا وَنَصَارَ No one will enter Jannah except the Jew or the Christian. Just say, okay, yeah, you guys are going too. But us too. Just give it a little bit. You know? Somebody, actually I had a conversation with an interesting Christian uh, a friend. Tell me, why do you Muslims believe you're all going to heaven and nobody else? Why, why do you believe Christians are going to hell? He's like, why do you believe Muslims are going to hell? I'm not going through Christ, so am I going to hell? He goes, yeah. So why? Why so mean? He's like, that's not mean, that's what I believe. I was like, that's not mean, that's what I believe. It's not mean. And I, I really respect Christians who are upfront about their faith. And Jews who are upfront about their faith. A preacher came to the masjid one time, he said, Look, I'll tell you like it is. I believe nobody's going to heaven except through Jesus. I'm letting you know now. I don't believe you guys are going to heaven unless you come to Jesus. But that doesn't mean we can't work with each other in this world. What happens in the next world will happen, and we believe it, and you believe it. That's fine. But we could still help out the homeless in the neighborhood. Okay, you know what? I respect that. That's cool. Cooperate in good deeds, no problem. Don't cooperate in evil deeds. It's fine. At least they're upfront about it. We don't have to like water down and say, no, 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 you're believers, we're believers, everybody's happy. Allah isn't happy. It's not, you know, and if they're upfront about it, we should be too. That doesn't mean we hate the other nation. You know, not agreeing with somebody's beliefs does not mean that you hate them. I don't know, for some reason, Muslims, we can't draw that line. Right? If they do shirk, oh, we hate them. No. We don't hate them. You can't, like you can't invite someone you're fighting. Remember that? You can't invite someone and fight them at the same time. You can't invite someone and hate them at the same time. We don't hate non-Muslims. You can't. You can't do that then. They're in the wrong line of work. The prophets couldn't possibly have hated the people they were inviting. If they did, they couldn't have done da'wah to them. It wouldn't work. 950 years? It doesn't work. 
You know, we, there's something skewed in our understanding. We're just developing our, our skewed understanding of wala and bara, for example, implying we have to hate everyone else. Implying we have to look, look down upon everyone. No, no. How do you invite someone without showing them respect and courtesy? How do you? What kind of invitation is that? You don't invite someone and insult them, you know? These are attitudes that are, that are coming directly from Qur'an. It's not some stuff I'm coming out with, but inshallah you'll see it yourself. How Allah wants us to honor people, we do da'wah too. That's coming too. And then you know what, what modern angry, angry folks say? Oh, those are ayat al-mansukh. Really? Every time you have to be like a normal human being, it's mansukh for you. Everything is mansukh. It's blasphemy, I tell you. Anyway, الَّذِينَ آتَيْنَاهُمُ الْكِتَابِ Those who we have given the book to, يَتْلُونَهُ حَقَّ تِلَاوَتِهِ They read it like it, read and follow it like it deserves to be read and followed. أُولَٰئِكَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِهِ Those are the ones that actually believe in it. You know, there are two expressions in the Qur'an, we gave them the book, they were given the book. I'll say that again. We gave them the book, as opposed to what was the other one? They were given the book. They were given the book. When you say we gave them the book, Allah takes credit for giving the book. When He says they were given the book, He doesn't mention Himself. It just says a book was given, but He doesn't mention Himself. When they do something disappointing, He says they were given the book. He doesn't mention Himself. It's an expression of how disappointed He is with them. He doesn't even want to mention Himself. When they do something right, He mentions Himself. It's a sign of Him being pleased with them. Here he says, Those who we gave the book to, they read it and follow it like it deserves to be read and followed. They do something good or no? They are. So he's happy with them, so he mentions himself. His qurb, Allah mentions his closeness, his beauty in the Quran. They, deserve, they read and follow it like it deserves to be read and followed. Those are the ones that believe in it. What are we learning in this ayah? We are learning people who don't, the converse, people who don't read and don't follow the book, like it deserves to be read and followed. In fact, then don't really believe in it. How can you believe that this is the most valuable thing ever in your life? This guidance, and you don't read it and you don't follow it. How can you follow it if you don't read it? You don't even have time to read it. What kind of belief is that? You know, when something is of value to you, it gets your time automatically. It's very simple. You guys are, you know, as the Arabic students here, if you have an exam, and you tell you exams on chapter 5, what are you going to be doing before the exam? You're going to be like spiritually connected to your textbook, chapter 5. After Salat, you'll be sitting with chapter 5. and That's what you're going to be doing. When something is of value, you know it's connected directly to your success. It gets your time. It's very logical. When the Qur'an fails to get your time in mind, there's something, in our, something wrong in our head. Something hasn't been connected yet. You know, and whoever disbelieves in it, they in fact are the ultimate losers. They said they're the only ones going to Jannah. Allah says those who disbelieve in this book, they're the ultimate losers.
أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا بني إسرائيل اذكروا نعمتي التي أنعمت عليكم وأني فضلتكم على العالمين واتقوا يوما لا تجزي نفس عن نفس شيئا ولا يقبل منها عدل ولا تنفعها شفاعة ولا هم ينصرون وإذ ابتلى إبراهيم ربه بكلمات فأتمهن قال إني جاعلك للناس إماما قال ومن ذريتي قال لا ينال عهد الظالمين رب الشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ثم أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We uh, begin today with the final ayah or the final two ayat on uh, the narrative of the Israelites 122 and 123 That's where the entire discussion on Banu Israel concludes Ya Bani Israel athkuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum wa anni faddaltukum ala al-alameen Sons of Israel, make mention of the favor that I showered upon you and that I had given you preference over all nations and all peoples of the world. This is a, an ayah that completely, just absolutely mimics ayah number 47 of the same surah. This is actually of the 19 passages that the Israelites' discourse is made up of that I've d- delineated and defi- defined and organized in a previous session. This is number 19. That number 19 is just these two ayat. The concluding discussion. And this is actually, a, uh, in a sense, taking us back to the first passage. Of these 19 passages, the first passages also began, Ya Bani Israel, adkuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum, wa awfu bi'ahdi, ufi bi'ahdikum, wa iyaya farhabun. That's where it began. Okay. Now that first passage, it was really interesting in that it, it began and ended with the same call. Ya Bani Israel, Ya Bani Israel. That's how it began and ended. And the summary of that first passage was they were being called, they were, the, their crime was being summarized as, and this is specifically the Jews of Medina, first of all they're being told, be grateful for the favors that were done to you in the past and how you were given more favors than anybody else. I give you preference over all other nations, not just in that Allah gave them prophets and messengers, but Allah did them more favors than He did any other nation in, in history. So first they're made aware of their history. The second thing that they're being told is to accept this final revelation. Quran. And of all the people that should be accepting this revelation, they should be the first, and ironically, they shouldn't be the first to disbelieve in it. Then they're called out on their current state of affairs, which is you people, you know, you uh, are experts in the religion. You're, you're the people that know the Torah and the scripture, the Hebrew Bible more than anybody else. And, you know, it's kind of a a closed society, not everybody in the Jewish community knows what's the, the content of the Torah. It's the experts, the scholars, the, like we have in our tradition, the Mufassirun and the Fuqaha, those kinds of people. They know what's in the, in the text. And so you're in a very easy position to disguise the right thing with the wrong thing. Like tell people what you want to tell them and not actually what's in the book. So he says, Don't disguise truth with falsehood and thereby hide the truth. And so in saying that specifically to the religious leadership, what's being highlighted is they're in a position to interpret the religion and manipulate people any way they see fit. And Allah is calling them to fight against that tendency. And so that entire passage in summary, that first passage, is simply calling them to do one thing. 
first of all, acknowledge that there are a lot of favors have been done to them. And now it's time for them to truly show gratitude by accepting the final revelation and leave their corrupt practices behind. This is a call more than anybody else. It's, I know it says, Ya Bani Israel, sons of Israel, all of them. But as you study the crimes particularly, the, there's primary audience and secondary audience. The primary audience is in fact the rabbis of the Israelites. And then the secondary audiences are the congregations who blindly follow them. Okay? Now what happens here at the end is that by, by mimicking the same exact ayah and revealing in the, in the order at the end again, we're almost reminded, now I want you to think back to where we started and revisit this question. But it's incredible that now, even though it's the same exact words, it has a different meaning. And that's the first thing I'd like to highlight to you about this ayah. When Allah says, make mention of the favors I've done to you, had He mentioned any favors before? No. That's the first thing He said to them, make mention of the favors I've done to you. And then came the list, I rescued you from the Pharaoh and you know, the cloud and the, 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 you know, the rock that gave out springs and all of it, right? And so first, what favor? What do you mean favor? And then there's a list of favors. By the end of it all, when he says, Israelites, make mention of the favor, they already know which favor. Why? Because it's all been listed. But question is, where has it been listed? In the Quran. It's so amazing that the Israelites are being told, the only way to mention my favor to you is to actually become reciters of Quran. It's so beautiful that they're being called to the Qur'an in this way. This phrase even, is actually Iqra'ul Qur'an to them now. Let's read the Qur'an, study the Qur'an. The other beautiful thing here to, to note is uh, the use of the word ni'ma, the singular. Mention my favor, one that I showered you with. One favor, there was a list of like a thousand favors. There's so many favors. Why is he saying one favor? You know? And when you take stock of what's been said throughout, the ultimate favor to them is that they, despite all of their mis misdoings, get to be the audience to the Qur'an and the Prophet The grand favor of all the favors is that you you're in the audience of Allah's final word. Even though you violated Allah's word previously. There's so many reasons to disqualify you, but you get to be the generation that hears Allah's word yet again. And I address you once one more time. So of all the favors, and they all apply, because you know the singular in the Arabic language, what's, it can also be used in a sense called ism jins. Ism jins means an entire class or entire category. So for instance, when we say in English, um, you know, man is unfaithful or something, or man is forgetful. That's not a reference to one man, it's a comment about mankind. But the word man is singular, one person, right? Similarly, the word favor, it can be interpreted as all favors, you know? But it can also have this meaning of a very singular. So it's kind of got that duality in meaning. So in the sense that it's singular favor, I would argue that the most compelling case is that of the Qur'an itself and the Prophet's presence before them Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and that the same Jibreel that they're enemies to which was at the center of this passage is the same Jibreel that's giving them the words through Allah Ya Bani Israel Like I'm your enemies to me and I'm giving you the favor of guidance That's you be grateful for what's what's being given to you and that then the other interesting thing here is and then I had favored you over all other nations. That phrase also, has a dual meaning. In the beginning, it's a reference to what happened in history. Historically, so many, no nation received what you received. And now, it's as though the past tense here is suggesting, now the favor is done. I used to favor you over all other nations. Like it's done with now. 
it's the case is closed. You better, you better get your act together and the case is closed. Something I probably should have highlighted in the very beginning that I'll make mention of now is even the use of Ya Bani Israel as opposed to Ya Yahud, you know, Ya Ahl al-Kitab, people of the book, but uh, instead saying Ya Bani Israel, sons of Israel. Clearly what they're being called on to remember themselves as is their lineage, right? Children of Israel. And Israel's other name, if you don't know, is Yaqub. Yaqub's father is, anyone know? Yaqub's father is Ishaq. And Ishaq's father is Ibrahim, right? Now, on the one hand, revelation was given to the children of Ishaq. And through Ishaq, Yaqub, which is Israel, and through Israel, you get the Banu Israel. On the other side of Abraham's lineage, Ibrahim salam's lineage, is Ismail. And through Ismail's lineage, you get the Prophet Muhammad So you would think that on the one hand, you have the children of Israel, and on the other hand, you have the children of Ismail. That's the contrast, right? Children of Israel, children of Ismail. That's not the contrast in the Quran. Are, are the Muslims ever called children of Ismail? No. But interestingly, we are called, we, we are addressed as your father was Ibrahim. Millata abikum Ibrahim. Like the only prophet that's ever been referred to, not just as a prophet to us, but a father to us, is Ibrahim salam. Now that's important to understand as far as lineage. Because the Israelites, when Allah calls them, He calls them to remember their father is Israel. And when He calls the Muslims, He calls them to remember their father who? Ibrahim. That's the contrast. We're actually, if anything, we're children of Ibrahim. He's our father. That's, that's what the Qur'an's call is. But then it seems like, on the one hand, that the grandson was referenced, and on the other hand, the grandfather was referenced. Right? And it, the Jews are also children of Ibrahim, aren't they? So why just refer them to as children of Israel? And we are children of Ismail in a sense, because that, that's where the lineage begins for the Prophet ﷺ and all of that. But he takes us back to Ibrahim ﷺ. So what's the benefit in doing that? It's actually in a sense to remind us that we have to think of our identity, like identity comes from the father. The Muslims have to think of their identity tied to Ibrahim As Just as the Jews thought of their identity tied to who? Israel. Like that's how they identify themselves. That's their father figure. Just even in your personal life, how much does a father have an effect on a child's personality and their sense of identity, right? Their last name. That's, it's a part of who you, it's an inseparable part of who you are. But if you reflect on that, just that notion, that Ibrahim salam is in fact our father, then our identity as Muslims is actually shaped very much at its core by his personality. And that's really amazing, because the Israelites were a specific nation, right? They're the lineage of a specific father. But Ibrahim salam didn't stay in one place, he travels around. And he's not even concerned about one nation. He's just, everywhere he goes, he's taking Allah's message. And then there are prophets that are coming to destroy even the nation of Lut that has nothing to do with Ibrahim. And he's arguing with those angels not to punish the people of Lut. In other words, clearly he is concerned about who? All of humanity. The Israelites were concerned about who? Themselves. Ibrahim, however, was concerned with all of humanity. And we are the children, not of Ismail, but the children of? Ibrahim. If we, if we were called children of Ismail, that would actually in a sense mean that we are concerned with the Arab peoples. And if once we call ourselves children of Ibrahim, Millata Abikum Ibrahim, we're actually just like Ibrahim I'm concerned with all of humanity. So the scope, the way we identify ourselves, what we're concerned with, way more broadened. 
I had given you preference previously over all other nations, but this is, this is going to be different now. So this is the concluding uh, discussion on the Israelites and how it's now wrapping up. But then that's the other beautiful, beautiful thing that um, I didn't get a chance to highlight before. And I think it's so important in the study of the Qur'an to, to like, in my studies, there are sometimes there are insights inside of ayat. You, you, know, you realize something as you're studying and you make note of it. And there are certain principles. And principles are like, you know, in a building, there are pillars that are holding up a building. There are certain principles in the study of the Qur'an that when you become aware of them, then your study just changes. And this is one of those principles that I'd like to highlight to you. What are the Jews actually in the study of the Qur'an? Especially these 182 or so ayat, what are they? They're a nation that lost their, um, their way after having an elaborate tradition in religion. They had book, they had law, they had fiqh, they had aqidah, they had tafsir, they had, they had it all. They had ulama, they had you know, ijazat, they had the entire system of tradition. That's what they had. But over time it deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated and what was left was some rituals that were empty and people didn't really know why they were doing what they were doing and there were fatawas in all different kinds of directions. If I were to give you an, an analogy to help you visualize that, what Allah gave them was this beautiful building. This Islam was this beautiful building that Allah gave them. And over thousands of years, this building deteriorated and now it looks like ruins. It, it's still a structure, but it's hideous, it's ugly, it's got leaks, it's falling apart all over the place. That's what they became. And, but still, it is a building and it originally was an amazing thing. It's got historical value. And the heirs of that building, generations later, are being told, you know, this was one of the most amazing buildings of its time. You should restore it. Right? You should restore that building. It's, it deserves it. It's, a, it's so phenomenal. It was at the heart of you know, uh, the, the people. Like, you know, imagine if people didn't care, take care in a, na in a nation's capital or something like, like the Washington Monument or something like that. They didn't take care of it. And generations later, if they have a revived sense of identity, the first thing they would do is what? Restore that. Like what they do in Europe, right? These, uh, in France, for example, there are constantly renovations going on of the buildings from Napoleon's time. Like they're constantly renovating them. Why? Because they just, that's their identity. The, the faith that they were given was their identity. Now, I, the reason I painted this elaborate picture is to give you one of those, those pillars that I was referring to in Quranic studies. Like, one thing that you have to have to hold on to. If you have a nation that was a nation of faith, that were given law, that were given revelation, and they lost their way over time, and they just became like empty rituals, and they don't really know what the religion truly is about, and they've deteriorated in all kinds of ways, and they're fighting one another, and they're hating on each other, and that's what they've become. That's what the Israelites had become. And they're dispersed and scattered. And they take some parts out of context and other parts they completely, you know, completely ignore, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, this is what they've become. By the way, I'm painting this picture and I'm hoping you realize it doesn't sound like I'm describing Jews. Right? That's why I'm describing it this way. That's what happened to them. How do you take a people that have so gone down the drain so bad, how do you bring them back? Well, how does the Qur'an plan to bring the Israelites back? The Qur'an says, step one, call them by the lineage that gives them a sense of identity. Ya Bani Israel. What would that be to us? What would be our lineage, our heritage that gives us a core sense of identity? What father figure? Yeah. The first thing you got to do is bring you back to who Ibrahim is. If you want to fix the Ummah again, you got to go back to Ibrahim the second thing is, أُذْكُرُوا نِعْمَتِي أَلَّتِي أَنْعَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ Make mention of the favor I did on you. 
how did Allah make what, the, the idea of the favor Allah did for them was, of course, they, they crossed the water with the Pharaoh. You know, he gave them, you know, a cloud in the desert. Uh, he gave them manna and salwa. He gave them the springs of water. These are the things he gave them. But how did he describe that to them? He described that to them through the Quran, didn't he? Quran became a list of the favors that were given to them. Guess what? For us, the ultimate, they crossed the water. Our messenger crossed the desert from Makkah to Medina, didn't he? The enemy was after him, just like Pharaoh was after Musa. And they crossed, and then they became a nation that were given law. Musa went, crossed the water, they were in the desert, and then Allah gave them the law. Then the Torah was revealed. Rasulullah crosses the desert, and he gets to Medina, and what does Allah give him? Sharia. Halal and haram. That wasn't revealed in Mecca, that was given to him in... So are there parallels here? Yeah. And these parallels are important because that journey and that, that, that entire like, story, the, the powerful story of the Prophet ﷺ, there's no better place that captures the story of the Prophet ﷺ than the Qur'an. The Qur'an is actually the most beautiful seerah text. That's what, actually what it is. It's the story of the Qur'an. And the, the, the Qur'an is the story of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet's life is the story of the Qur'an. They're each other's story. Now what happens is there are some surahs in the Qur'an that have, <laughs> like if you study them, you're like, is this a commentary about me? Or is this talking about something that happened in the Prophet's life? It's an elaborate description of what happened in Badr. Like exhaustive description of exactly what happened in Badr. Exhaustive commentary of what happened in Uhud, for example. A detailed description of what happened in Hudaybiyah. A detailed description of what happened at, you know, with Banu Quraidah in Surah Al-Hashr. Why? And this is so specific. If the Qur'an just wants to give you general rules, here are, here's the, you know, the, the code of ethics for war. Here's what you must do, here's what you must not do. That, you can do that, right? And then just, that's revealed and that's what we do. But the Qur'an is actually commenting on very specific incidents. Very, very specific incidents. Yes, and we study those incidents and then we say, let us drive universals from it. But think about this philosophically for a second. Why not just give us the universals? Why make us go through the incident and then pull out the, the lessons? Why do we have to go through the incident to begin with? Part of the guidance of a nation that will deteriorate is they have to relive the struggle of their prophet. They have to review the struggle of their prophet. The Jews were made to review the struggle of who? Musa salam. The struggle of the righteous people among them. We, every time you study the Qur'an from beginning to end, there are parts of it where you have no choice but to review the life of Rasulullah salam. What does that do? It actually makes you grateful for the favor you've been given. Because when they made that hijrah, that and on when they made when they did Hudaybiyah and when they fought Hunayn and when they did this or that or the other, that's the reason I get to be a Muslim today. It makes me grateful for what I have. The Jews that were being talked to in Medina did not cross the water. They didn't just live in Medina. That happened thousands of years ago. What does he say to them? Farakna bikum al-Bahar. We crossed the you crossed the water. We made you cross the water. But that's not you, that's your ancestors. Yeah, but when the way Allah describes history, it makes you feel like you're there. Allah is making you and me feel like we're there in the seerah of the Prophet That's one of the goals of the Qur'an. We started looking at the Qur'an so legalistically that every time we look at an ayah, we say, what can, what's the fatwa that we can derive from this? Or what's the theological principle that we can derive from this? 
one of its fundamental goals was to actually connect us to that original struggle. And that's guidance. That on its own is guidance. When people start reliving the life of the Prophet ﷺ through the Book of Allah and mentioning the favor that Allah had done on us now, we start mentioning the favor Allah had done on us, then we're going to start becoming restored. This is guidance, by the way, this is a piece of you know guidance. Guidance through, the, through an appreciation of history. Guidance through history, like reliving history. Not just knowing history, reliving it. Te crying those tears with them. Fearing those fears with them. Your hearts had reached into your throats and you were thinking all kinds of things. You're reading that about Ahzab and you're like, it's like you're standing there and the armies are approaching and you're terrified. He makes you relive it. Now that's guidance through history and appreciation of history. And what's the next thing? If you know, you know how they say this, you know, cheesy saying, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Kind of thing, you know? You can't really understand your future if you don't understand your past. What did Allah do in this, this two succinct ayat? In one ayah, it's the past. Make mention of the favor I already did to you. The way I preferred you over all other nations. That gives you a sense of history. What does the next ayah do? وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا لَا تَجْزِي نَفْسٌ عَنْ نَفْسٍ شَيْئًا Be cautious of a day on which nobody will benefit anybody else. That's your future. What, what's the thing that will give us guidance in the future? Judgment Day. Judgment Day is guidance. For the past, it's the history that Allah recorded forever in Qur'an. For the future, it's a constant reminder of Judgment Day. And so both of those have been put together. And either one of them at the expense of the other, or without due diligence to the other, creates a kind of imbalance. There are people, all they concern themselves with is the afterlife. And they forget about where they're, you know, what this history is and how, it's, how do you prepare for the afterlife. You have to look at what happened in the past. And there are people who only revel in their, that's what happened to the Jews. They only thought about their history and, and a skewed picture of their history and became self-righteous and think, that, thought that they have nothing to concern themselves with in terms of meeting Allah in the afterlife. You know, this, both of those concerns hand in hand together is the balance of Qur'an. So anyway, so, وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا Be cautious of a day. لَا تَجْزِي نَفْسٌ عَنْ نَفْسٍ شَيْءٍ And no person will be able to compensate any other person. وَلَا يُقْبَلُ مِنْهَا عَدْلٌ and uh, ransom will not be accepted. وَلَا تَنْفَعُهَا شَفَاعَةٌ Nor will intercession be taken. وَلَا هُمْ يُنصَرُونَ Nor will they, they're not the ones that are going to be aided. This ayah is also a mirror of ayah number 48, except the sequence is a bit different. And so I'll make a few comments about that. Uh, the first of them is in ayah number 48, where this whole thing began, Allah reminded them of Judgment Day, but the way He reminded them was, Two things won't judgment day, nobody will help anybody else. Nobody can pay for anybody else. That's number one. Number two, no intercession shall be accepted. Now intercession is a big word, so I'll replace it with a smaller word, a plea. No plea will be accepted. No attorney will be accepted. Nobody to come in the, in the middle and say, could you go easy on him? Just, you know, he had it rough. Just somebody to stand between you and the judge. That's usually in, in courts, it's a lawyer, right? Or it's some, somebody who has a connection. That one will not be there. No intercession will be accepted, nor will any ransom be taken. Now, that sequence is important to understand. That's the first sequence. It's important to understand because it's a very simple psychological sequence. When somebody's committed a crime and they're about to be taken in front of the judge, they would be smart to have someone speak on their behalf, usually some kind of a lawyer or somebody else, right? 
that would be a shafi'ah. That would be someone who makes a case on your behalf. Now if you have no lawyer, nobody, that, or it wasn't accepted, the lawyer wasn't, was thrown out. And now you're just, it's just you and the judge. Now you have two things, either you're gonna do jail time or pay the fine. What would be your option? Jail time or fine, what would you go with? The fine, right? Your first option was the lawyer will get me out of here. Your second option is at least I'll pay a fine. What does Allah do? When He says, لا يقبل منها شفاعة Intercession will not be accepted, basically lawyer's no good. Lawyer's no good. What was your second hope? The fine. لا يقبل ولا يؤخذ منها عدلون There's no fine that's gonna be accepted. No, company, no ransom will be taken. Uh, then the only thing left is punishment. Because the two things that could have gotten you out of it are gone. And then as you're being dragged away and you're screaming, Somebody help! Somebody bust me out of jail. So anyone. They're not the ones that are going to be aided. That's the, that's the picture in the beginning. And this is important to note because they thought that even if we do get in trouble with God, yeah, the prophets will come and speak on our behalf. We had more prophets than anybody. The Torah will come and speak on our behalf. The angels will testify on our behalf. They'll vouch for us. Even Quran says angels will vouch for us on Judgment Day. نحن أولياءكم في الحياة الدنيا وفي الآخرة. There are in the Akhirah too. Why not? But then, as these these you know eighty some ayat are revealed, and it is demonstrated that the prophets you think will come for you ain't coming because you messed up with the prophets, and you became enemies to the angels, and the book you changed and violated. So if anything, they'll testify against you, not for you. By the end, the order of this. Language has changed. Allah says, لا يقبل منها عدلون. No ransom will be accepted. When you say the first thing, by the way, you better watch out because no ransom, no fee will be accepted. It's like the lawyer's out of the question, isn't it? Because it's already been established, the ones that were going to come defend you, they're not going to defend you. If anything, they'll testify against you. So then the first, sort, the first, first resort for you is actually the ransom, the fee, you know. And so you say, Allah says, وَلَا يُقْبَلُ مِنْهَا عَدْلٌ In this ayah, He says, no compensation, no fee, you know, no fine shall be taken. وَلَا تَنْفَعُهَا شَفَعُونَ And somebody coming on your behalf is of no benefit anyway for you. I mean, at this point, that should be obvious to you. لَا تَنْفَعُهَا شَفَعُونَ That's why تَنْفَعُ even the, the word benefit. Because the, 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 the shafa'a that could have benefited has been eliminated. They're not going to be helped anyway. A similar ayah at the very, very end of the entire discourse is Be conscious of a day on which no person will compensate in any other person in any way, shape, or form. The order is now reversed. Um, and so no ransom shall be accepted. And no intercession will be of any benefit. No intercession. Instead of saying no intercession or no plea will be accepted. The verbiage has changed, no intercession will benefit. La tanfa'uha shafa'atun. No more literally, no intercession will benefit such a person. Tanfa'uha, the ha goes back to nafs. Walahum yunsarun, nor will they be aided. The, th the thing I wanted to highlight is the difference between intercession being accepted and intercession being of benefit, right? Because that's the two different verbs that are being used for intercession. And to make the matter simple, in the very beginning of this discussion, the, the language is, no intercession or no plea is going to be accepted. And at the end is, no plea or no intercession will be of any kind of benefit. 
And this is, uh, I thought about this for actually a long, long time. And it just one of the things that hit me this morning, Allahu Ta'ala A'lam, is there's a difference between how a conversation begins and how a conversation ends. And when this conversation begins, the Israelites have not yet been incriminated. The case against them hasn't been made. It's the first thing that they're being told is, you better be cautious of a day when this is going to happen, right? And when they're thinking of intercession or a plea, you have to think of things that come between you and the punishment of Allah. They're standing in trial in front of Allah, and they're about to get into trouble. What can they put between themselves and Allah as a shield that can protect them from getting into that kind of trouble? The first of those things that can be a shield for them would be the book itself. Like for example, in our case, the Qur'an is either a shield or a case made for you or against you. Like there's so many hadith of the Prophet uh, where you know the hufad the, of the Qur'an and the ayat coming and pleading on your behalf or turning into a crown of light on your, you know, and then the light coming out of the chest in Surah Al-Taghabun, meaning people who had Qur'an in their hearts, that iman, that Qur'an turns into light that they can walk with. In other words, on the Day of Judgment, one of the things that makes the case for you that shields you and protects you is revelation itself. In our case, it's Qur'an. In their case, it was what? It was Torah. So one possible hope that they'll have shafa'ah will be uh, the Torah itself. The other shafa'ah, as we know, would be hopefully their prophet. The, their prophet can testify, they stood by me. They were loyal to me. And if a prophet makes a case on your behalf, then you're good. Right, so there's the book that should make a case for you, make a plea for you. The book itself testifies in your favor. The, the messenger of that book testifies in your favor. And of course, on top of that, the, the witness to all of our deeds all the time are who? The angels, which Allah says in Quran, نَحْنُ أَوْلِيَاءُكُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ We are your protective friends in this life and in the next life, right? So the idea is that even the, they are going to come and testify on our behalf. As a matter of fact, they're even making istighfar for us as we speak. Now, there are three I've mentioned so far. It could be the book, it could be the messengers, and it could be the angels. Once you go through this entire passage, and by, so the first thing they're told is, no intercession will be accepted. And the question that might come in the mind of the Israelite is, wait, so the book won't testify on my behalf? Wait, the messenger? Musa won't? All the Israelite prophets won't testify on our behalf? Wait, wait, angels aren't even going to testify on my behalf? How can that be? Why wouldn't it be accepted? Like, because the, the, the phrasing is, it won't be accepted, right? And it does beg the question, why shouldn't that stuff be accepted? We are the people of these things. By the end of this entire discourse, what has become clear? They violated and committed crimes against their book. They violated and committed crimes against their messenger. And they committed crimes against the angels. They became enemies to the angels. Man kana even, right? So by the end of it, it's become abundantly clear why it won't be accepted. And so now when you say it won't be of any benefit, it won't be, because you can't say that in the beginning, because the, 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 the intercession or the plea of the book or the angels or the messenger can be of benefit. It can be of benefit. So that would actually negate the idea that those things are beneficial. But by the end, there's no possibility for the book or the messenger or the angels actually pleading on your behalf. So now you're going to look for an intercession somewhere else. These things are no longer, they've been invalidated. And if you look for something to shield you against the judgment of Allah on Judgment Day, anywhere else, is that of any benefit? No, and that's why by the end the phrasing is, and what intercession is going to be of benefit to you? It's not going to be of any, any benefit. لا تنفعوها شفاعا ولهم ينصرون they're not going to be aided at all. So it's a profound statement about how once the case is made, where are you going to go? 
you have no malja left. You have no you have no refuge left that you can turn to, and thus no no other kind of plea will be of any any avail. And so as this wraps up, I bring you to the last ayah of, of today's discussion. Uh, just a couple of things about it, inshallah, and we'll have a more elaborate discussion. Maybe maybe I'll finish this. Maybe it'll take about fifteen minutes. Bear with me, inshallah. We'll we'll get through this. Allah began the surah, and there are the, the first major story was the story of Adam alayhi salam. The second story is the Israelites. The third story is Ibrahim. Yeah? It's pretty cool because it began with the story of a father, then the story of children of Israel, and he goes back to what? Father. Ibrahim is a father. And then it's going to be our ummah who are his children. Right? So <laughs> the sequence is father, children, father, children. It, it, it progresses that way. Okay? So now we're at the second, and then the other thing is this sequence, father, children, father, children, has another remarkable element to it. The first story was who again? Adam. The second story was? Israelites. The third story is? Ibrahim. And the last story, last account is Muslims, our, ourselves. All four are tested. Was Adam tested? Were the Israelites tested? Was Ibrahim tested? Are we going to be tested? Yeah, we're going to be testing you with all kinds of stuff. Literally, that's what he's going to say. Okay, now check this out. All four are, what do they have in common? They're all tested. Now go back. Adam alayhi salam, passed or failed the test? Failed the test, but then recovered. Because you can fail a test and recover by repenting. Because that's what he did, right? Second group, passed or failed the test, the Israelites. Failed the test and recovered or no? No, and they didn't repent. Failed, and then failed squared. Okay? The third group is, the third story is who? Ibrahim A.S. Passed the test or failed the test? Passed with flying colors. He passes with flying colors. You've got three scenarios. You've got someone who's tested and failed and then recovered. You've got someone who tested and failed and didn't recover. And you've got someone who was tested and passed with flying colors. And then who's mentioned? Us. And we're about to be tested. And now we're being told there's only three possibilities for you guys. Because we're not told if we pass or fail. We're just, you're going to be tested. So you're, you could go the road of Adam, which means you will fail sometimes and you better do what? Repent. You might end up going down the road of the Israelites, fail a test, and then revel in that like glorious failure and not repent and let it stink it up or you can be like Ibrahim and pass the tests with flying colors to begin with and by the way I expect you to pass because you are children of oh so boss so cool that's that's how this is ordered you know how the themes are progressing in the surah anyway Ibrahim let's first talk about his name when Ibrahim was tested thoroughly, and Ibrahim, like no other, was tested thoroughly by his master. The word Ibrahim, according to Hebrew scholars, comes from three parts. Ab, Rab, Ham. They break the, the word up into three syllables. Ab, Rab, and Ham. And the word Rab, not like Rab in Arabic. Uh, Rab in, in Hebrew means chief or captain or leader. And they make that short and drop the second Ba and just make it Ra. So instead of Rab, it's pronounced Ra. And that's why you get a Abraham. It was actually Abraham and became 
Abraham like that. That's how that's its etymology in the original language. Ab means father. The Ra part means leader. And Ham means many. The father who is the leader of many. That's the actual meaning of Ibrahim. The father who is the leader of many. Okay. Now that's a pretty epic name because... And by the way, did the Arabs know that meaning? No. Because it's not an Arabic word. Ibrahim is not an Arabic word. So when you look at this ayah that we're, we're looking at, Surah Ayah number 124, what does Ibrahim mean again? The father who leads many. Okay. Qala inni ja'iluka linnasi imama. Allah said, I'm going to make you a leader over all people. Is that his meaning? Is that what his name means? A leader over people? Allah literally translated his name in the ayah. And you wouldn't know that until you studied the etymology of the word. And he's done that for from the study of Abdul Rauf, 60 names. 60 names that Arabs did not know the meanings of have been translated in the Quran in an ayah. Like he'll mention the name and then translate it. Actually later on it's Ismail too. Ismail is not an Arabic name. It's Ishmael. Yeshmael, that's the original. And that's also Hebrew. And Yeshma actually means like Yasma'u in Arabic. It's close to the Hebrew. What's Yasma'u? To listen. Il is the equivalent of Allah. Yasma'ullahu. What does that mean? Allah listens. Ismail was born. Ibrahim was in shock that he had a child at such an old age. He said, Ishmael, Allah listens. And that became his name. Yeah. And that, so his name is Allah listens. And check it out. Later on, they're going to build the foundations of the Kaaba. He's building the house with Ismail. Ya Allah, you listen. I got proof right here. <laughs> his name is translated in the ayah. So Ibrahim's name is also here translated. That's a side note about just the etymology of the word. So, so beautiful. Then you have um, the word ibtila. Amazing word of the Arabic language. Lughatul al-dad. A word that could mean itself and its exact opposite. Uh, balahu in Arabic could mean imtahanahu, uh, ikhtabarahu, to test somebody. Bala can mean a test. Ibtila could mean a very difficult test. Balahu ta'ti kathalik bima'na an'amahu. Arabic students could tell me what an'ama means. To bless. To bless. Like Surat al-Ladheena an'amta alayhim. Like that. Ibtala Ibrahim rabbuhu could mean two things at the same time. Ibrahim, his master thoroughly tested Ibrahim and greatly blessed Ibrahim. This is the common word used in the Quran for tests, by the way. Bala. It's not the only word, but it's the common one. And it's incredible that Allah uses that because in using it, He has taught us a philosophy of tests and trials. Trials to Allah are always a blessing. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Somebody's trial is somebody else's blessing or even their own blessing down the future. And there's no greater example of that than Ibrahim alayhi salam. 
When Ibrahim السلام, is about to slaughter his son, he has no idea that that's a blessing. All he could see at that point is that's a trial. That's a test. When he's about to be thrown into a fire, all he sees is a test, he doesn't see a blessing. But when Ibrahim السلام, is about to slaughter his son, and then Allah says, قَدْ صَدَّقْتَ الرُّؤْيَا And then that tradition of sacrifice is inaugurated. And to this day, every time an animal is slaughtered, and every time somebody takes a single bite of any of the animals that are slaughtered, who gets the blessings of that? Ibrahim For all those thousands of years. For all those thousands of years. It's him. There's not a single person who's ever done Hajj that Ibrahim didn't get the reward for. Uh, it's... It's overwhelming to think about, like, the tests are massive, but what they covered behind them were enormous what? Blessings. Enormous, enormous blessings. The, take a step forward and you find, like, because I teach a lot of uh, Hudaybiyah, right? So just even think about one aspect of Hudaybiyah. Those people that went with the Prophet to perform Hajj and didn't get to do it. They didn't get to do it. And they came back. They were super frustrated. They bled, they were almost killed on several occasions. They were humiliated. They saw Abu Jandal, their own brother, grabbed by the head, bleeding and in chains, dragged back from between them, back into a prison cell in Mecca, and they could do nothing about it. And then there, and these are the people they fought in Badr and Uhud and Azab, and they can't touch Abu Jandal being tortured like that by his own dad. And they're walking right through them, and they're walking back frustrated. And but that them not being able to do Hajj that year is the reason we do Hajj. You know they slaughtered the animals that year? And they fed the animals to the mushrikun? Abu Jandal just dragged by his father back. And then the Muslims are told, because when you finish Hajj, you slaughter the animals. We're leaving. You have to slaughter them now. They slaughter the animals. They can't take the meat back. Eid Mubarak, mushrikun of Makkah. Not only did you just humiliate us and not let us do Hajj, all these animals that we walked from Medina are going to be given to you. And then we go back. You know when you eat like meat from Eid, right? Like the reason we get to eat that meat is because they didn't get to. Like their trial became our blessing. You understand? It's incredible that, and I would argue that no person has ever done Hajj since that those people didn't get reward for. Them not doing Hajj is the reason we do Hajj. <laughs> incredible. So if the, I, the, the philosophy of trials in our religion, and that's even at a personal level, you, you and I go through trials. Our trials are a blessing. No matter what it looks like, they're a blessing. But the question is, how is it a blessing? It may be a blessing for you in a way that you don't yet understand and in, a, in, in the future in a way that you don't understand or it may not be a blessing for you right now at all. It may be a blessing a thousand years later for somebody else. It may be a blessing for people you'll never ever meet. What Ibrahim السلام, did is not a blessing for people he's never ever met from all over the world in languages he'll never speak. <laughs> yes. You can't limit how it's a blessing or who it's a blessing for. But no, it's a blessing. Every trial is. So he says, he ta and Ibrahim is muqaddam. You'll notice Ibrahim is mansub, and it's muqaddam. It's before 
the words Rabbuhu. So it suggests when Ibrahim السلام, was tested by his master like no other. Bikalimatin with just some words. Allah tested him with just words. And I love this phrase kalimatin because usually in Quran you say kalimatillah. The words of Allah, kalimatihi. Okay? Or kalimati rabbi. It's mudaf to something. It's always like words of my master, words of Allah, his words. Here's just some words. And this is an echo of something that occurred previously in the surah. فَتَلَقَّى آدَمٌ مِنْ رَبِّهِ كَلِمَاتٍ فَتَابَ عَلَيْهِ Adam came into contact with some words. And those words were the reason his tawbah was accepted. Now that same words are coming again. And when there we thought about words, those words must have been a dua that he asked Allah to forgive. Those were the words and that's why Allah forgave him. Now we're learning words from Allah could actually be a trial and that'll get you forgiven. The trial may be, the blessing in a trial may be, it's the reason you got forgiven. You're, you're in forgiveness through it. An easy example of that is sickness, isn't it? Sickness is a trial. What does the Prophet say about it, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? La ba'as. Fahul inshaAllah. No problem. It's a purifier. By if, if Allah were to will. Right? So that's the idea of kalimatin, instructions that were given. And the other ambiguity about it is some of his trials, he didn't even realize their trials. He sees a dream that he's slaughtering his son. He's not sure what that is. He sees it again. He sees it again. Then he goes to his son and says, Inni arafil manami anni adbahuka. I see in my dream that I'm slaughtering you. His son doesn't say, Dad, do what you see. Ifal ma tara. He says, Ifal ma tu'mar. Do what you're told. The son says, Actually, what you're seeing is a command, Dad. Let me take the ambiguity away. It is a command. So it was general, kalimatin, and then it became specific. It, it, the, here, the, the translation would be, He fulfilled all of them. The first thing I'd like to highlight here is the word hunna. Uh, it's actually expected to say ha, fa'atammaha, it's non-human. But Allah says hunna tafkhiman, meaning those were not small instructions. He completed, oh my God, he completed all of them. Like that them is a big deal, because they weren't, they weren't small instructions. They were not easy things to, to fulfill. The other interesting thing I'd like you to note is there are two words for completion in the Qur'an that occur commonly. Uh, there's akmala and atamma. Like, الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينَكُمْ وَأَتْمَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ نِعْمَةِ وَرَضِيتُ لَكُمُ الْإِسْلَامَ دِينَةِ There's itmam and ikmal. Okay? But the difference between them linguistically is kamal or ikmal is about a timeline. Okay? So, if for example you completed the three-month course, which means you studied the entire three months. This is akmaltahu. Okay? So completing something that takes time, that's the idea of kamal or ikmal. That's why we say, for example, it's really cool, the ayah about, you know, uh, um, mothers, how long should they feed their children? وَالْوَالِدَاتُ يُرْدِعْنَا أَوْلَادَهُنَّ حَوْلَيْنِ كَامِلَيْنِ كَامِلَيْنِ لِمَنْ أَرَادَ أَنْ يُتِمَّ الرَّضَعَ Kamil? Yutimma. What does that mean? Mothers should feed two whole, two whole years. Two whole years. Time period, right? So the word whole or complete is kamilain. To fulfill the to, you know, for anyone who wants to complete and perfect the requirement of feeding, yutimma ar-rada'a. So let me tell you the meaning of atamma now. Kamil or akmala has to do with the time, fulfilling the time requirement. Atamma is to perfect something. Every brick that was missing in the wall has been added in. Every patch that needed painting has been painted. When you finish a job and there's no shortcomings left and it's done to perfection, that's called atamma. Okay, that's atamma. 
everybody can finish the exam in an hour. Akmalna limtihan. But not everybody's gonna perfect the exam. Atmamna limtihan. You get it? And somebody who like killed the exam, perfect score, they didn't lam yukmilhu bal atammahu. He didn't complete it as in he just finished the test. Somebody who didn't fill much out or just X, Y, X, Y, X, Y and handed it in. They also did ikmal, but they didn't do itmam, okay? So he says, atammahunna here to suggest every single test he was given, he fulfilled it to perfection. He didn't just see it through to the end. Because you know when a trial comes, when a difficulty comes to you and me, it's come for a limited time, right? Maybe a year, maybe a day, maybe an hour, whatever the trial period is. You got through it, akmaltahu, but I don't know if you kind of, you know, you could go through it like with flying colors or you could have like messed up royally along the way and like, oh, at least I got through it somehow. Like, <laughs> Allah says, atammahunna. He fulfilled them to perfection. No hesitation. Qala, and then Allah says, Qala inni ja'iluka linnasi imama. Here, please pay attention. There are two things to note. They're incredible. One meaning of I am make I certainly I have made you for all people without exception. That's why it's muqaddam for all people a leader, and I'll uh, interpret leader in a bit. But that statement that he's he's made Ibrahim a leader over all people can mean two things. In this ayah, linguistic grammatically, it can mean two things, and they're both incredible. One meaning commonly taken is he passed all these tests, and what is the badge of honor he gets at the end? You get to be the leader. You went through some. Incredible tests, here's what you get. You get to be the leader. Here's the second meaning. What did Allah test him with? What does the ayah say? He tested him with what? Words, right? Some interpret these are the words. Allah tested Ibrahim like he's never tested him before with the words, I have made you a leader. Uh, like of all the tests he went through, the biggest of all of his tests was that he's made him a leader. That's the ultimate trial. <laughs> SubhanAllah. There's personal trials and then there's trials that, you know, that your failings are going to affect others. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, Imam. Imam comes from the word Ammaya Ummu, which means to have qasada, to have intent or purpose. Uh, and Ummah is a group of people unified by purpose, as opposed to a qawm or a qadiyah. They could be geographically unified or ethnically unified. But a, uh, an, an ummah is unified by purpose. An imam is someone who leads a people and gives them purpose and direction. When Ibrahim alayhi salam, by the way, that's literally the case with the imam who leads the prayer, right? He determines our direction. He also determines our course of action. Like, what should we be doing and when is determined by the imam. Ibrahim alayhi salam is called imam and the, the profound statement you know, as opposed to uswa, you know, a role model, right? That's used for the Prophet What that suggests, what the implications it has, and it's, it's going to be important to note because a few ayat later, we're going to be called an ummah. وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِنَا أُمَّةً مُسْلِمَةً لك. Same origin, same root origin. He's the imam and we're the ummah. That means that the sense, the sense of direction for the ummah, the spirit of the ummah, the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about the world around us, should be framed by our Imam, which is Ibrahim And he is concerned and for giving that sense of purpose to all people. He ingeniously says, and from my children, 
When you say from my children as opposed to saying about my children, huge difference. An dhurriyati, about my children. Min dhurriyati, from my children. Tab'idan, like Ibn Ashur says. What, what, what would that mean? That means that he's not asking for all of his kids. He says he recognizes that you can't have all your children be leaders. But so long as some of them are, they'll help lead the others. So he very ingeniously asks, Min dhurriyati. Dhurriya is not just children, that's abna or awlad. Dhurriya actually means generations upon generations upon generations to come. Like descendants. What about my descendants down the road? This ayah is so heavy. First of all, we're thinking, we should think about Islam like Ibrahim alayhi salam. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? All the time. Now, we're, now you're learning, we should think about leadership like Ibrahim alayhi salam. If you really become, think like Ibrahim alayhi salam in terms of leadership, you never think about leadership right now. What do you think about? What do you think about? Who is that? A hundred years from now. Two hundred years from now. Three hundred years from now. Our children's, 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 children. How do you leave something that will benefit them? You know, the ummah today is on fire. So many places, there's in a state of emergency. Don't think of an entire country in a state of emergency. Think of one house in a state of emergency. One house has a fire. When one house has a fire, what can you, what's the only thing you can think of? How do we put this fire out? How do we, that's all you can think of. You can't think of, how do we extend this house? You don't think of that. You don't think of, how do we make this neighborhood safer? How do you think of, how are we going to accommodate you know, more people as guests? You don't think of any of it. How do we improve the backyard? You can't think of any of that. All you can think of is, how do we put the fire out? The problem with the Ummah today is, we are in one fire after another, after another, after another, after another. And our questions and our concerns and our problems and our, our thoughts are always about putting out one fire, and the next, and the next, and the next. When it's not Syria, it's the Rohingya Muslims. When it's not the Rohingya Muslims, it's what's happening in Kashmir. When it's not Kashmir, it's, some, it's, just, it's just something or the other. And we're caught, constantly putting out fires. And the thing about leadership, is leadership, regardless of fires, has to take a step back and say what? Where are we, where are we heading a hundred years from now? Where are we going to be too... Like, Who's even thinking about the Ummah for the next 100 years, for the next 500 years? We're just thinking, what's going to happen next year after the election? It's going to be bad. I think I'm moving to Canada. That's, we can't think ahead. We, we can't. And until we do, we're not, we don't know what leadership means like Ibrahim Salam defined it. We just don't know. Now Allah gave him a, this is the last bit now. Ibrahim salam. okay, this is his greatest trial. But the other interpretation is, he passed all the greatest trials, and now Allah gives him this award that you get to be the leader. And even in that sense, if he's done so much for Allah, he's passed through so many tests with perfection, Allah says with perfection, you should be in some kind of a position to be able to ask stuff. After all, you ask Allah for stuff when you go to Hajj, or when you've prayed the Hajjud, or fasted, you know, Ashura or something. If you've done the extra thing, isn't that the time to ask? Like, the more you've done for Allah, the more you should be in a position to ask. Well, Ibrahim alayhi salam has done some incredible stuff. He should be in a position to ask. So he did. He said, what about my kids? And you would be hopeful that Allah will just, yeah, of course, you, anything. 
take it. Your kids, grandkids, you got it. You earned it, Ibrahim. Oh, great job. Because he's not asking anything else. And so when he asks this question, Allah says, La yanalu ahdi al-zalimeen. My promise does not extend to wrongdoers. Uh, that's kind of cold. After all the trials and all the perfect score passings, you ask one thing, and you've just been made leader over humanity. By the way, notice, he was made leader over human people, all people. He didn't say, can you give me leaders out of all people? He said, give me leaders out of where? My own kids. That's another concern about leadership. Before you can fix humanity, you have to fix your own generations. Your own. We start thinking there are geopolitical problems. There are problems in this region and that region and eco economics this and political science that and our grandkids aren't praying. Like, Minduriyati, he's teaching us something. Leadership will come when you become concerned first with your own generations. That's your primary task. Now, Allah says, my promise doesn't extend to wrongdoers. What does that mean? Allah didn't say no. He didn't say no. He just said not to wrongdoers, which means some of your children will have leadership. But there are other children that are going to be pretty messed up. And I will call them avvalimeen, wrongdoers. And my promise, what promise? The, by the way, promise here means there's a promise I will give leadership. But I just won't give it to wrongdoers. Now the thing is, uh, the, who are the two main audiences of the Prophet? Think about this. The two main audience, the two main communities that are the audience of the Prophet other than the Muslims. The Mushrikun of Mecca and the people of the book in Medina, isn't it? And of course, in, the, in this surah, it's the Mushrikun of Mecca and the Jews. Those are the two audiences. The Mushrikun of Mecca consider themselves children of Ibrahim, yes or no? Yeah, they slaughter the animal every year because they think of themselves as children of Ibrahim. The people of, the, the Jews consider themselves descendants of Abraham or no? They do. And Allah says, Ibrahim, I've made you leader over all mankind. Can my children have leadership? Some of them? Who currently has leadership? The Mushrikun of Mecca have leadership. And the Jews of Medina have leadership. They have two different kinds of leadership. The Mushrikun of Mecca have leadership over the Kaaba. The Jews of Medina have religious leadership. Isn't it? Allah says leadership is not going to be extended to the wrongdoers. Who's the wrongdoer? Are they both wrongdoers? Are the Mushrikun of Mecca wrongdoers? Yeah. Are the Jews of Medina wrongdoers? Yeah. And Allah says, my guarantee of leadership does not extend to them. Is one statement thousands of years ago to Ibrahim salam, And in one statement, the Prophet is being told, Quraysh are not going to stay in power and the Jews are not going to be the religious leadership of Medina. Because Ibrahim was told, they don't deserve it. These are the failed children of Ibrahim. In just one statement, one swoop. The, the last comment I want to make to you about um, this prayer is that uh, Ibrahim salam, his words min suggest something. That we should make dua and we should concern ourselves with at least some of our children uh, prepped for leadership. Prepped to learn and teach the religion. Prepped to be role models to others. And not leadership, not in the sense that they're going to grab a mic. But in every family, there has to be some cousin, some brother, some sister, some aunt. That's the go-to for their deen. Somebody needs to be there. 
And the idea, when Zurriyati suggests, is, you know, you have like a hundred cousins and there's like one person that knows the religion. And then you have this Eid gathering and they're all asking him questions. Hey, so is chewing gum haram? Is this haram? Is that haram? Like, they do that, don't they? Because that's the, the one that has some education. Every family should actually think, yes, I have children and some of them may not be very inclined towards the study of the religion or understanding it and leading other people and guiding them in what is right and what is wrong. But those who have that aptitude, we must invest them in this. So every, every family has at least somebody every, among their dhurriya that can guide the rest. That's the genius of this dua. And then Allah says, by the way, even if you have that, there's still going to be wrongdoers. And no matter how much preaching you can do or teaching you can do, people that want to do wrong will do wrong. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And I'm not guaranteeing that they're going to be righteous just because they belong to that family. You know, and righteousness cannot be genetic. It can't be inherited. And so that's, that's the, the comment that's being made here. It's very, very profound about like, especially in our time, right? Like, we constantly think we're living in a non-Islamic environment. How are we supposed to raise our children? I find that question rather absurd. I really do. The entire history of prophets is them living as minorities. Entire history. Living in highly un-Islamic environments. So un-Islamic that God will destroy those nations. <laughs> That's where they're living. And believers are living there. The most stable, you can argue, society where like, we were kind of, you know, the, 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 the prophetic model is in, in charge, is Medina. Yeah? When the prophets, the governor of Medina Did you know that we were numerically a minority in Medina? We were not the majority. The seerah of the Prophet is the seerah of a man and his, belief, his followers that lived as a minority the entire time. And were surrounded by a, what you can argue, a toxic environment. Medina up until the 16th year of revelation had brothels, prostitution houses. Well documented. So the nur came down in that context. And I'm like, why do they have that? That's Medina. Munawwara. Like, who even, because to have that stuff, you have to have customers. Who are the customers? There's a, there's a society in play. They do their thing. The Muslims are there too. And they're dealing with it. And they're still holding on to their Islam. So, the, you know, for, for us, to think that an, a, being in a certain country or in a certain place is somehow going to... It's not. It's how you raise your kids. Like you raise your kids. How you are with your generations. That's what determines everything. You know? There, there, are, there are people... I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen kids that have been brought and raised in a very Muslim country messed up. And I've seen kids raised in Oklahoma that are amazing. That, I mean, honestly, you know, it's, it was so wild to me that when I was in a Gulf country that shall not be named, um, no, <laughs> it shall not be named, and it wasn't the way, um, and they, had, they, held a, they held a question answer session with parents, I was like 200 parents showed up, you know what their question was, how do we teach Islam to our kids like you guys do in America? I, I am in the, I know I travel a lot. Maybe I lose track of where I am sometimes. I am in the Arab world right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have any Islamic schools. What are, what are, what are some Islamic school curriculum recommendations? <laughs> what? Yeah. 
I was in another country that shall not be named. And the question was, a Muslim country, an extremely Muslim country, how do I teach my kids Halloween is wrong? And I'm, you have to teach your, yeah, because, you know, we, we all go to American schools and British schools and they have Halloween. Like, why are you, we are in America and Britain and we pluck our kids out of the school system and put them in dilapidated Islamic school buildings. <laughs> you are in the Muslim world and you pluck your kids out of Islamic environments and put them in American schools. You're awesome. <laughs> and you say they don't know how to pray yet. He's 16, he doesn't know how to pray yet. Fantastic. You know, the place is not determined what kind of parent you're going to be. What kind of environment? That's, that's all it is. We, we pray that Allah allows us to become parents, uh, good parents, and then that, that we are able to raise among our children those that can carry the banter of this thing. Barakallahu li wa lakum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sons of Israel, remind yourselves of the favor I, I favored upon you, the, the preference I gave to you. It started with that way back, and then for all of these passages, the conversation with Bani Israel continued, and now at the end again, the same address was given, concluding that conversation. But one of the first things we learned about Bani Israel, when Allah Azza wa Jal had tested them with a lot of difficulty, Allah used the words, وَفِي ذَلِكُمْ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ بَلَاءٌ وَفِي ذَلِكُمْ بَلَاءٌ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ عَظِيمٌ And in all of these trials, meaning the Fir'aun, you know, persecuting you, there was bala in it for you. Bala is a great trial. Now, bala in Arabic means trial, but the word ibtila is tougher. It's a harder word. And that's the word Allah uses now to describe the tests and the trials of Ibrahim alayhi salam. So there's really a comparison here. You went through trials, yes, and they feel like they have this special place in the world because they went through all of these different trials and they have a special rank with Allah. But Allah says, I chose someone before you who had much tougher trials. So Allah says, وَإِذِ ابْتَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ رَبُّهُ When Ibrahim alayhi salam, when, when, when his master tested Ibrahim, بِكَلِمَاتٍ with just words, with just a few, and kalimat also is here very important. Allah tested him, not by putting him in a situation, He tested him with very difficult instructions. Kalimat, just words. And everything else Ibrahim did willingly. Compare this to Bani Israel. When they were given words, when they were told, do this, don't do this, then they, they constantly fail those tests. And the only test that we can speak about for Bani Israel in which they you know, actually had a challenge were the ones that came to them from calamities other than you know, from the instructions of Allah. For example, being out in the desert, you know, having to wander in the desert, or having to escape from Fir'aun, things like that. But Ibrahim salam was put in a, in a situation of trial by Allah's instructions himself. The other very beautiful thing here is the attitude that they were given preference. And now Allah Azza wa Jal talks about, well, you think you're the only one who was given preference? Look what I said to Ibrahim after, after he passed his tests. Allah says, إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا First he says, فَأَتَمَّهُنَّ He completed all the tests. He passed all of those tests. And even a child in the audience knows what are the tests of Ibrahim alayhi salam. You can, you can list them off the top of your head. And they're not easy things like jumping into a fire, 
like leaving your family in the middle of the desert, you know, like having to slaughter your own son, like facing the likes of Namrud. You know, these are, these are not easy trials, like taking on an entire village, like having to even challenge his father and being expelled from the home. This is from the starting point. You know, this is, this is the easy stuff. Then it gets harder and harder for Ibrahim salam. So those are the trials of Ibrahim salam. And Allah says, then when we tested him with these instructions, he completed all of them. He fulfilled all of them with flying colors. And what did Allah give him as re- in return? What is the honor Allah gave him? imama. I certainly am making you a leader, an imam. Imam literally, you know, someone people follow. You know, I'm making you someone people follow. You know, you, I'm making you this universal leader for humanity. Linnasi. So now they were told, I was given you preference over all nations. And Allah much before that told Ibrahim, I'm making you imam over all people. And so in this, there's something very special. Ibrahim salam is the father of both the Arabs and the non-Arabs. Ibrahim salam is both the father of Ismail and of Ishaq, right? And from Ishaq's lineage you get Yaqub salam, Yaqub salam, his other name is Israel, and, thus, and so on and so forth. So now if their only reason for not accepting the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is the argument that he doesn't belong to a chosen race, he doesn't belong to the chosen people that Allah had given special preference to, well, you yourselves are only chosen because you, not, not because you're from Bani Israel, but because you are from actually Bani Ibrahim. That you are from the children of Ibrahim. That's, the, that's where the super special preference began. And this entire legacy of you getting prophet after prophet after prophet, and this entire legacy of you getting guidance, all of that's actually still in the end from the dua and the, the, the effort of Ibrahim salam. A lot of work has been done on this issue. And inshallah, I'll just touch upon it briefly. But there's been a debate, you know, uh, especially in interfaith kind of discussions, which of the sons was slaughtered? Was it Isaac that was attempted by Ibrahim or was it Ishmael, right? Was it Ishaq or Ismail And of course, our, our belief is that it was Ismail and Christian doctrine and, you know, biblical references, they don't talk about Ishmael, they talk about Isaac. And there's some historical reasons for that too. Historical reasons being, they, you know, uh, uh, in Jewish tradition already, Arabs were considered the lesser race. And of course, since the Arabs are, con- you know, uh, appropriated with Ismail alayhi salam, you know, part of that was to explain history in a way that doesn't give any credit to Ismail. You know, it doesn't, nothing comes his way, you know. But interestingly, in the Bible, even you find statements like, sacrifice your only son. Only son. And even in biblical tradition, uh, Ismail is considered the older son. According to the Christian and Jewish tradition, Ismail is considered the older son. So if you say only son, well the only time Ibrahim has an only son is with, with who? With Ismail And they, they argue back, they say, no, 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 actually, no, he wasn't a legitimate son. That's why he was, <laughs> you know, Ma'adullah. That's their counter-argument. That he wasn't really from a legitimate mother, that's why he doesn't really count as a son. What an absurd argument. And that goes back to attacking the nobility of the Prophets themselves, والسلام, including Ibrahim Another interesting point that was brought up by Hamiduddin Farahi, an Indian scholar. On this, he did his own research, and he had quite an extensive documentation from the Hebrew Torah in his book, and also, you know, just comparative notes and things. And he made a very interesting observation about Arab history. These pagans in Mecca, they did not have any like tradition of books. 
These even Allah calls them al-ummiyin, right? The unlettered. So they don't have a history of libraries and historians and you know books like that. These are pagan people. And yet even as a pagan culture, you know what one of their constant practices from way before Islam was the slaughter of an animal in celebration of the sacrifice of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And even they used to call it the house built by Ibrahim alayhi salam. So the question arises to those who say it was Isaac, how in the world are these pagans who have no access to any biblical knowledge, how are these people celebrating this tradition for centuries, even millennia, before Islam even comes up? Before even Islam is brought to them and said, this is the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam. Even before that, they, they, they knew this to be a case. And they celebrated this and the slaughter was already part of their ritual with the Kaaba. It had taken a you know, twisted form because of shirk and you know, uh, corruption. But nonetheless, some of it, the, the origin of it was already there. SubhanAllah. So that's, that's an important uh, uh, you know, uh, aspect of this history for Muslims to understand. Again, I'm only just briefly pointing to it. And the, the, the thing I really wanted to point out in this ayah is when Allah, Allah gave Ibrahim these incredibly difficult tasks. And at the end of those tasks, He said, I am giving you, I mean, what greater honor can you have? You know, when you go really hard, you work really hard in school, or you work really hard at your job, and you finally get the promotion, or you even get an award, or you get called employee of the year, or whatever, right? You get, or you get some acknowledgement. It's a huge honor. And at that moment when you get the honor, you know what words come to somebody's mouth when, they're head, when, they, when they have the diploma handed to them or when they have the award handed to them and the handshake takes place? These inauguration type ceremonies. What are the first words as a natural response that come out of your mouth? Thank you. Thank you. That, that's, you don't even think about it, you say thank you, right? Because it's just you're appreciating this honor that you've received in, in any aspect of life. Now think about that. I don't know if there's a bigger honor somebody can get than being called Imam over who? Everybody. I'm making you over all people Imam. What a huge honor. And on top of that, when the honor comes from someone important, it even, becomes even more important. You know? And this honor is coming to Ibrahim salam from who? From Allah. Now, even when human beings give you an honor, the first thing that comes on your lips is what? Is shukr. And on top of that, think about this, Ibrahim salam is one of the most grateful people that ever lived. Allah describes him saying, Shakiran li an'umihi, was grateful to the favors of Allah, the gifts of Allah. He was grateful. Allah, one of the descriptions of Ibrahim salam is, he was grateful. So you would think that at this occasion, at the occasion of receiving, you would argue, arguably the greatest gift, getting to know that I passed all the tests. That's a gift. And on top of that, being told you're Imam over all people. Another gift on top of that. By the way, why are these two gifts? Because when you and I, we're being tested by Allah too. But do we know if we're passing or not? We don't know. When are we going to find out? When, it's, when the story is over, then the results come out. The results don't get given to us. At the end of the day, you don't get an email sent from the angels on either side. Hey, this is how you did today. No, it doesn't work like that. The report is being recorded. Right? And it's being archived and we will get to see it eventually. But you don't know how you're doing right now. Ibrahim salam has gone through these tests and even as he was going through these tests, he doesn't know where he stands with Allah. But Allah gives him the gift of letting him know even in dunya, you did good. Uh, you did so well that I'm making you imam over people. Right? Now, I said the natural expectation is to say thanks. Listen to his words. When he hears the words that he's been made imam over people, 
What is his immediate reaction? Qala, he said, وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِي What about my children and their children and their children and their children? ذُرِّيَّة is not just your children, it is your offspring. Future generations. That's his first response. That's the first thing that came in his head. You know why? Because he understands something we don't catch right away. We don't catch it right away. When you're told that you're imam, is an imam a kind of leadership? Perhaps even the most important leadership? When you are in Islam, when you are a leader, is that an honor more or a responsibility more, more of a responsibility? It's more of a responsibility. And when it's a responsibility, who are you responsible for? Whoever is under you. And if, you, if they mess up, who will be answerable first? Just like at your job. If you're the manager and your, your people in your team mess up, who does the boss come after? You go after them, but the boss doesn't go after them. The boss comes after who? Comes after you. Where were you? What happened to your team? How are you not managing them? What's going on? Why didn't you meet the deadline? You understand? He understands that if he's been made imam, not over a couple of people, over who? Humongous. So he needs some pretty good managers in his offspring to take care of this business. To understand on, on judgment day, he has to be responsible over a huge responsibility. <inaudible> so he understands that responsibility and says, what about my kids? It is that legacy, it is that spirit that we're supposed to have with who? With our children. We make dua to Allah, Allah teaches us this dua in Surah Al-Furqan. He says, you know, رَبَّنَا هَبْلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَاتِنَا قُرَّةَ أَعْيُنٍ وَجَعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا he, he asks us, he tells us to ask him, make us imam over people that have taqwa. In other words, make us imam over a family that isn't messed up so that we stand before you with the failed, failed results. You know, and this is obviously a long conversation because our families have many variations in them. But that concern is number one. First and immediate response, what about my kids? What about my offspring? And it is this concern that eventually leads him to make dua, O Allah, send prophets among them. Send a messenger among them. You know, that will recite the ayat upon them and so on and so forth. That, those ayat are coming in a sec. But listen to the response of Allah. Now leave it at that here today, inshaAllah. When he says, وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِي What about my kids? I mean, you have to also think, this is a great time to ask Allah for things. And Ibrahim salam understands that. When you do something for Allah that pleases him, that would be a an awesome opportunity to ask Allah for stuff. That's the best, you know, for example, when we go to Hajj, we do something for Allah, which is one of the greatest things we can do for Allah, you know, in our, in our limited ability, that would be an awesome time to do what? To make dua. If you ever catch a Qiyamul Layl at Tahajjud, what would be a great thing, to, a smart thing to do when you're done? Make dua. If you get a chance to do Umrah, you would make a lot of dua. If we get a chance to catch, you know, Laylatul Qadr or the odd nights or even Taraweeh prayer, etc. Extra ibadat to Allah. Those are all opportunities for us to ask Allah for things. The more you do for Allah, the more you figure, you know what, this is a good time for me to, I've tried to make Allah happy. So this is a good time for me to ask Allah for what is it that I need. So Ibrahim salam sees the opportunity. Allah is clearly happy with him. He's made him imam over people. How does he seize the opportunity? What's his immediate dua? Take care of my kids. And their kids and their kids and their kids. But then you have to look at the shocking response from Allah within the same ayah. It's an amazing response. Allah says, Qala la yanalu ahdi My guarantee, my promise does not extend 
to wrongdoers. لا ينالوا عهدي My promise does not extend to who? To wrongdoers. الظالمين Now, Ibrahim salam didn't say, what about the wrongdoers? What did he say? What about my children? And Allah said, my guarantee, he didn't say my guarantee doesn't extend to your children. He said, my guarantee doesn't extend to wrongdoers. What is Allah telling Ibrahim salam? Listen, some of your kids will be wrongdoers. Some of them will be, that's a fact. And he didn't even say, if they are wrongdoers, then my guarantee doesn't extend. He didn't put a conditional statement, he just made a statement of fact. Wrongdoers, my guarantee is not extended. In other words, a fact of life will be for Ibrahim to deal with, is that of his children, there will be those who go off the path. They will not be on the path. Are the Quraysh not the children of Ibrahim The Quraysh are children of Ibrahim The followers of Musa who disappointed him that we learned about are not children of Ibrahim They are. Look at the most interesting case, the brothers of Yusuf Not only are they children of Ibrahim they are also children underneath him of Ishaq and underneath him of Yaqub. They are sons of prophets, of prophet, you know, sons of a prophet, grandsons of a prophet, great-grandsons of a prophet. Did they still screw up? They still messed up pretty bad, huh? No guarantees are being extended. لَا يَنَالُ عَهْدِ الظَّالِمِينَ so now I'm going I'm to leave it at that, but I want you to appreciate, and some of you have heard me talk about this at length before in, in some other uh, uh, forum, but I'll explain inshallah ta'ala, I'll try my best to explain how Ibrahim salam then takes that information, what Allah has just told him, which seems like pretty sad information, and he deals with it and adjusts his dua. He doesn't give up. Allah has told him, this is not, it's not a blanket guarantee. So now he comes up with another way of Another way of asking Allah, then another way of asking Allah. He keeps adjusting his dua until he gets a yes from Allah. He wants to leave with a yes. He wants to leave with a yes. And by the way, what's the, what's the way of getting yes in, in ancient tradition? You know what they say? Silence is acceptance. So you'll find Ibrahim makes a dua, a counter dua, and Allah answers. Then he makes a counter dua, then Allah answers. Then he makes a counter dua, and then there's no answer. When there's no answer, what does that mean? That's the one that's accepted. And then Allah starts complimenting Ibrahim. Right after that one, Allah starts complimenting Ibrahim alayhi So inshallah, we'll take a journey through these beautiful, beautiful ayat that are just an awesome, you know, uh, passage on what dua is. What dua is and what realistic expectations from Allah means. If anybody should have expectations from Allah, it should be Ibrahim alayhi salam. If someone has the right to have expectations with Allah, it's Ibrahim alayhi salam. So this passage is a lot to teach us in how to have realistic and hopeful expectations with Allah. May Allah teach us how to make dua to Him properly and sincerely. And may Allah make us of those who are committed to the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And through him, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim. Wa nafa'ni wa iyaakum bil ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim. Assalamu alaykum. Anyway, so now I come back to the passage on Ibrahim alayhi salam. And Ibrahim alayhi salam in, in, the, in the first ayah, inni ja'iluka lil nasi imama, I have made you a leader. Uh, and someone who determines direction, imama from amma ya ummu, qasada, which means to have direction uh, for all of people. His first question was, what about from some of my children? وَمِن ذُرِّيَّةِ وَلَمْ يَقُلْ ذُرِّيَّةِ لِأَنَّهُ يَعْلَمُ أَنَّ حِكْمَةَ اللَّهِ مِنْ هَذَا الْعَالَمْ لَنْ تَجُرْ بِأَنْ يَكُونَ جَمِيعُ النَّسِلْ أَحَدًا مِمَّنْ يُصْلِحُونَ لِيَنْ يُقْتَدَى بِهِمْ فَلَمْ يَسْأَلْ مَا هُوَ مُسْتَحِيلُ عَادًا 
Ibn Alusi rahimahullah says, he didn't say, what about all of my children? He said, what about at least some of my children? The word min makes it tab'id. And he says he did that because he knows that it's impossible that all of one's children become leaders. That at least out of my generation, can there be some role models at least? That's what. So he asked a realistic dua and not an unrealistic one. And on a side note, what we learn from that is that we should ask Allah Azza wa du'as. And um, the, the, the concept of du'a, um, it really has become very confusing for Muslims. Uh, we make du'a for all kinds of things, right? Somebody gets sick, we make du'a for them. We make du'a for our children and their well-being, du'a to get, you know, somebody for, for somebody to get married or whatever else, or somebody to recover or somebody to find a job. We make all these kinds of du'as. But the thing is, you can easily categorize du'as into two. You can break the things you ask Allah, you can break them up into two. One of those things are spiritual in nature. You're asking Allah for guidance, for strength, to carry out His, His commandments. You're asking Allah for patience. You're asking Allah for a bigger heart so you can forgive. You're asking Allah to help you deal with a situation. Whatever it may be. You know, th- those are spiritual du'as, right? They're in a sense, you know, helping your iman in some way or the other. They're strengthening your faith in some way or the other. The other side of du'as is what? Stuff you ask for your life. You know, for, for a family member, you're making du'a. For, you know, for a better job, you're making du'a. For your studies, you're making du'a. For getting into med school, somebody's making du'a. You know, to have, there's a, somebody just wrote to me recently, they've been trying to have a child. They haven't had a child for six years. They're making du'a, you know. So there are du'as that are worldly in nature, in one way or the other. And there are du'as that are spiritual in nature, in one way or the other. The thing about it is that from, I mean, Allah Ta'ala A'lam, what I've been able to understand is that um, we ask Allah the loftiest of things when it comes to the spiritual, and we're supposed to. We're supposed to ask Allah for the highest levels of Jannah or the strongest of faith. And like, there's no holds barred when you come to ask Allah about taqwa or iman or forgiveness or patience and perseverance and firmness in faith and all of those kinds of things. And those doors are open without restriction. When people ask for those things, Allah gives those things without restriction. There is no limit to what Allah gives. Allah doesn't say, well, I'll hold that back from you. You know, you ask for iman, I won't give you that though. Or you ask for taqwa, but you're not, you can't have it, etc. You, when you genuinely ask Allah for those things, those things are given immediately. The difference, however, is when we ask Allah for the other stuff. Uh, somebody made a lot of dua that their father's in critical care, that they be healed and the father passes away. Does that happen? It does. And then they're like, I made all this dua. What, what was the point of it? Why didn't it matter? I'm, I've been making dua day and night for what's happening in Syria or what's happening in Palestine. And I've, I've been making dua for the people of Yemen or the people, you know, the, the, the Rohingyas or whoever else. But the crisis continues. What's the point of this dua? In other words, you're not going to see an immediate response to your du'as when it comes to them being what, what in nature? Material. When they're about worldly things, then the question arises, why even make that du'a? What's even the point? The thing is that what, uh, what, what seems to be the case in, at least what I've been able to understand of Qur'an, is that we are to ask Allah about worldly things with humility. What that means is, we have to acknowledge, I have to acknowledge, I actually don't know what's best for me in the worldly sense. I actually know absolutely what is best for me in the otherworldly sense. Taqwa is the best thing for me. Iman is the best thing for me. Sabr is the best thing for me. Absolutely, no doubt about it. There's no ambiguity that those are the best things for me, no matter what situation I'm in. But having a kid, is that the best thing for me? 
or I, I don't know. I actually have to have the humility to say I don't know. You know the story we went through in, in Surah Al-Kahf and the child is killed? Was that child the best thing for those parents? No, but they don't know that. They're still going to cry and suffer because they lost a child. There's no way for you to know. There are things that are happening that on their face value are extremely tragic and painful. And you're praying for them not to happen. But you and I lack the wisdom of Allah and the, the view of the grand plan of how this, what seems to be bad, is actually good in the long run for not just you, but for a lot of other people. Or the, the, the good in the overall sense outweighs the bad that you see here, you know, by leaps and bounds. You know, the, the, we don't know those things. All we know is what we see immediately and we make dua for that. So the way that the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet deal with this, if you survey all of the prayers of the Prophet and all of the prayers of the Qur'an that ask for something worldly, you'll notice the language is always general. The language is never what? It's never specific. It's never specific. And that's actually by design. We don't, you can make dua for like a 95 on a test or you can be specific. But you know when the more specific you are, like Ya Allah give me a son or give me a, you know, somebody's making dua for that, you know. Ya Allah let me help find me someone who is to marry, who is a United States citizen, who can give me a green card really quickly, who is, you know, this tall and my mother likes her because, and you know. And she's from the same zip code in Seattle court. And like, you know, you could ask for all that stuff. You can get very specific in your du'as, can't you? Like a wish list? You could. But if you study the spirit of worldly prayers in the entire religion, you'll notice that there's what there always? Ambiguity. Ambiguity. Ibrahim salam has a son with him right now, Ismail. He's making du'a. Allah just said, I'm making you a leader. Immediately you'd be very specific and say, can I... Can, get a guarantee of this one right here and can but he's just he's thinking future generations and saying some out of my generation can I just he's being realistic isn't he and he's broadening the scope of what he's asking for like to have the humility to put the brakes on what you really want and then say Ya Allah just give me something good you know what's good for me better than I do I know I really want this but Ya Allah, just, just something good. There's a guy and a girl that are engaged. They're ready to get married. Something happens or the other. The girl says, I don't want to anymore. The guy's devastated or vice versa. Right? And now she's making, Ya Allah, just change his mind. Ya Allah, please. I can't live without him. Or he's on the other side. Ya Allah, please, just make her eyesight worse so I start looking better to her or something like, you know. <laughs> uh, and then it doesn't happen and your faith is shattered. Why? Because what you were asking was for was far too what? Specific. Rabbana atina fid dunya? Hasana, just hasana. It's not like sayyaratan wa baytan wa ibnan wa like, it's just hasanatan. It's just open-ended. You know? <laughs> so that's actually, and I actually believe that if you don't internalize that spirit of dua, then it lands you into a lot of trouble. It, it lands you, but on the other hand, you have like the Prophet ask Allah even if it be for a shoelace, right? So that's there too, right? 
But what does that mean? Even if you're in the need of a shoelace, if you're in the need of the smallest of things, ask Allah. Ask Allah, you know, what your need is. Don't ask Allah how that need is fulfilled. That's the difference. Ya Allah, I'm hungry. Ya Allah, give rizq. Not Ya Allah, give a double cheeseburger with extra mayonnaise. Because where that rizq will come from, you don't know. Ya Allah, I don't have shoes. I need Nikes. I need, I, no, no, no. I just need shoes. Ya Allah, just give me something that can alleviate my difficulty. And Allah will provide. Because yarzuqhu min haythu la yahtasib. He provides from where you can't imagine. So you, you and I have limited imagination. We have something in front of us, that's what we want. That's not the case. There's something much better for you that you can't see, that you have to learn to ask Allah. But that, again, is, a, is, a, is, an, is only possible for people when they stop thinking like consumers and they start thinking like slaves. Because when you're a consumer, you place very specific demands. And you say, I paid the price, I, pay, I placed the order, I charged the credit card, why isn't this delivered? And now we bring that consumer attitude to dua and say, I made this dua like 85 times. I still didn't get it? What kind of deal is that? I'm not making dua anymore. And this can really mess somebody's relationship with Allah up. Right? So which dua is given response immediately? And you have to have absolute faith, it will be answered. Which kinds of duas? Spiritual ones. And they, by the way, are far more important. And they far outweigh, across the board, they far outweigh anything material you ask for in this life. Even though the, 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 just literally the, the weight and the volume of those du'as is so much greater than, than this side. As a matter of fact, even the physical everyday things you do, when you think of the du'as that you make, when you enter the home, or when you enter the bathroom, or when you enter, when you get into a car, or when you change your clothes, etc., etc., those du'as, you'll notice that they're entirely spiritual in nature. They're actually entirely spiritual in nature, you know? You're, you're getting in the car, subhanAllah, and then you're like, wait, I'm going from here to that destination and I'll come back home. But we're going to be coming back to our master. Like that's our actual home. Like you acknowledge that as soon as you get in a car. SubhanAllah. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So that's one thing I wanted to highlight on the side about the nature of dua, which I do feel, if not given due consideration, can become very deadly for people. And it can really, really shatter their faith. You know? وَإِذْ جَعَلْنَا الْبَيْتَ مَثَابَةً لِلنَّا So anyway, قَالَ لَا يَنَالُ عَهْدِي الظَّالِمِينَ He said, Allah says, my promise does not extend to wrongdoers. Nalayanalu uh, to reach or to extend to somebody. Ahad is a promise or a covenant. It's a it's a pointed word as I point uh, as I indicated in the last dars on this, these ayat that the word ahad is uh, particular to the people of the book. Uh, they use the word ahad for the Old Testament, the Arabs. So my promise doesn't extend to the wrongdoers is also kind of a pun that wrongdoers didn't deserve the Old Testament that they didn't live by, meaning the you know the the Jewish community that violated their book. But right now, it's just a conversation with Ibrahim alayhi salam. My promise, my promise of leadership does not extend to the wrongdoers. Now, the conversation is about imama, right? It's about leadership. And there are two kinds of leadership. There's Medina leadership and there's Makkah leadership in the life of the Prophet Makkah leadership is about the custodianship of the Kaaba. Who's in charge of the Kaaba? Medina leadership, the Jews, is the custodianship of who is entitled to, to be the, the, the flag bearer of revelation. Who is the chosen Ummah, right? 
the the Quraysh don't care about being the chosen nothing. They just care about the Kaaba. That's their leadership. So there's two dimensions of leadership. Who considers themselves the leading nation? And who considers themselves the custodians of the capital, if you will. In this statement, when Allah says, my promise does not extend to wrongdoing, my promise of leadership, both groups have been disqualified. If they do wrong, what, what wrong have the mushrikun done? They've surrounded the Kaaba with idols. They've replaced the house of Ibrahim, which was the house of the worship of one god with the worship of many false gods. They're not qualified for leadership, which means they're supposed to be deposed. They're not fulfilled. And they took pride in being children of Ibrahim. On the other hand, the Jews that the, the, the surah is talking to, were they also considered? And did they also consider themselves children of Ibrahim? Yeah, they did. And Allah says, yeah, even they're not, they're not worthy of leadership. And that's something that really hurts both sides because both sides feel very strongly that they are entirely entitled and forever entitled to leadership. And in this one statement, you're like, not according to, your, not according to what I told your dad. Because <laughs> I told your father, wrongdoers. No. The wrongdoing of the Quraysh, well established. And in the ayat we just studied, the wrongdoing of who? The Jews, well established. So, yanalu ahd al-zalimeen disqualifies both. It's a very telling thing. It's actually an indication by Allah that both reins of leadership are about to be taken and handed over to the Prophet and this Ummah. وَإِذْ جَعَلْنَا الْبَيْتَ مَثَابَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَأَمْنًا وَاتَّخِذُوا مِنْ مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى وَعَهِدْنَا إِلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْمَاعِيلَ أَنْ طَهِّرَا بَيْتِيَ لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَالْعَاكِفِينَ لِلطَّائِفِينَ وَالْعَاكِفِينَ وَالرُّكَّعِ السُّجُودَ الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ثم أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم We're uh, looking at ayah number 125 in Surah Al-Baqarah As you recall we were talking about the conversation that Allah mentions between himself and Ibrahim alayhi salam and how Ibrahim alayhi salam's first concern was his future generations Allah now reminds us of something that Allah Azza wa Jal commanded Ibrahim alayhi salam to do. And so the first thing he tells us is, وَإِذْ جَعَلْنَا الْبَيْتَ مَثَابَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَأَمْنًا That when we made the house, meaning the Kaaba, the Qibla, مَثَابَةً لِلنَّاسِ وَأَمْنًا A place for people to come back to constantly, and a, a place where people will find peace. A place that is meant to be peaceful and safe. Interestingly, there's a transition. The previous ayah, the last conversation we heard was, What about my children? And all of a sudden, Allah starts talking about the Qibla itself, the Kaaba itself, Allah's house. You know, some ulama comment, like for example, Al-Biqa'i rahimahullah, very concerned with how the ayat flow, meaning how a subject goes from one to the other, to the other, to the other. And he ponders over this relationship between Ibrahim alayhi salam's concern for the future and immediately Allah mentioning his house that is supposed to be a place of peace and says that the preservation of future generations will have a lot to do with the house of Allah. It'll have a lot to do with the house of Allah. And of course it has to do with the Kaaba directly, but even by association, all of the houses of Allah that are built, including this one, are satellites of that house. They are extensions of that house of Allah, right? So what we're learning here actually is the, the critical nature of the role of the masjid in upbringing of our children. You know, in, in subtle terms, in between the lines. What's here 
is how important the masjid is in the raising of our children. Anyhow, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى And so Allah Azza wa Jal, he, you know, we're just pondering over Ibrahim السلام, and his uh, lineage, and he knows that we're the ones listening to these ayat, so that the amr is to all of us. وَاتَّخِذُوا And all of you take. مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى You should make, you know, uh, make sure you make a musalla, a place of prayer, out of the station of Ibrahim السلام, And you know about that in the Hajj and in the Umrah, the Masnoon prayer, where we're to make prayer, right? So in that transition also there's a hint That Allah is want, He wants us as we think about these things About what we should be doing Now that you have You know that Ibrahim salam built that house For his future generations Well who's included among that dua Who should be included among that Us Those who took shahada And so what should we do in honor of that legacy So here also we learn the, the, Some of the, the deeper wisdom of hajj and interestingly, one of, the, one of the trends in Surah Al-Baqarah is Allah drops a hint. He, drop, he gives a hint. He points to something in a very subtle way. And then later on it comes in full circle. Like a seed, you barely see the seed and later on it turns into a full plant. Right? So the same thing happened for example with Bani Israel. Right now Allah is just talking about Ibrahim salam. Later on He's going to talk about how the other children of Ibrahim salam have now been chosen. وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا Right now, just a subtle hint about وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلًّا And later on, in the same story, just a few ayat later, the change of the qibla itself. So the, the direction altogether will be changed. So hints are dropped first, and then the entire subject. It's, it's almost as though we're being mentally prepared. So Allah Azza wa Jalla says, وَاتَّخِذُوا مِن مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلًّا وَعَاهِدْنَا إِلَىٰ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْمَعِيلًا This is also important. And we took a promise from and we, Allah took this promise from who? Ibrahim salam. And what other name did you just hear? Well, Ismail salam. The conversation began, it was just Ibrahim. It was only Ibrahim salam. And he had asked in response, what about my kids? What about my children? And Allah said, wrongdoers, no guarantees. But Allah also, that in between the lines is telling us, not all of his kids are wrongdoers. I mean, think about at least who? Ismail salam. And interestingly, why mention Ismail? Especially because who can't stand the lineage of Ismail? Who's been listening to these ayat all along? The, the, but Israel have. They've been listening all along. So especially now an honor to Ismail and how when Ibrahim made that wonderful dua, the immediate acceptance of that dua was Ismail The immediate application was on Ismail So now, you know, the, you know actually uh, one of my, my teachers who was uh, interested also in comparative religion, uh, told me that in, in the Torah, in the original Torah, or what is left of the Torah, in Hebrew, uh, the building of the Kaaba is mentioned. But instead of calling it Bakka, they changed it to Sakka. And instead of Ismail, they changed it to Ishaq. So just move along. But they couldn't change too much of the spelling, apparently. <laughs> so Sakka is still there, <laughs> instead, of, instead of Bakka or Makka. So they, they, they made these alterations. Anyhow, so Allah Azza wa Jal commands Ibrahim and Ismail that both of you should cleanse my house. Both father and son should cleanse my house. Again, if this is the legacy of Ibrahim we're going to read later on in the same passage, Who should turn away from the legacy of Ibrahim except someone who's fooling himself? So everything we learn about Ibrahim is like a legacy of his. And holding on to that legacy is a smart thing to do. When Allah commanded Ibrahim to take care of his house, 
He didn't just command him. Who did he command with him? His son. What are we supposed to be doing with our sons? We're not, don't just volunteer at the masjid. Volunteer with your son. Don't just come to jama'ah. Come with your son. Bring, you know, our, our sons especially. It's an important thing that the fathers here realize how important it is to make service to Allah's house, participation at Allah's house, part of their son's life. And part of what they see as their father's contribution to them. People who bring their children to the masjid. I still remember when my dad used to bring me to the masjid. I still remember. Wallahi. And I still appreciate that. As one of the, one of the most beautiful... You know, children forget many things. One of the things, wallahi, you won't forget is when your father used to bring you to the masjid. Antahira baytiya. That you should both purify my house. Littaifina wal'aqifina wal-ruka'i sujood. For ta'ifin people who make tawaf. You know what that is. Wal'aqifin people who make i'tikaf. I think you know the term i'tikaf, right? So at the house of Allah, there will be people coming obviously for Hajj and Umrah, they'll make tawaf. Others will come yet for i'tikaf. Wal-ruka'a. Ruka'a is people who make what? Ruku'a as-sujood. The last thing is people who make sajda. Now interestingly, wal-ruka'a as-sujood, there's no wa' in between. There's no and in between. And what's beautiful about that is, tawaf is a separate activity, i'tikaf is a separate activity, but ruku' and sujood are one activity. One activity how? The salah. So there's the, the wa' is in, you know, removed because it's one activity really, it's together. Ruku' you know, necessitates sujood. And so here in this ayah also, there's just on a side note, an appreciation of beauty and sequencing in the Qur'an. The, you know, if you think of these acts of ibadah, ta'ifin, aqifin, ruka'i, sujood, three acts of ibadah, you can think of it as tawaf, i'tikaf, and salat. If you think of those three things. At any given time, which of those three acts is happening in the most number? The most, the most number. Who is the, the most number of people all over even the world, not just even limited to the Kaaba, are making sujood, actually. Sujood. Because sujood can happen in salah and even outside salah. And for every one ruku' there are at least to sujood. So sujood is happening the most. What's one less than that? Ruku'r. Ruku'r. What's one less than that? All over the world, including the haram. At least some people are making ratikaf. And what's the least amount, a most specialized, unique ibadah that's particular to the house of Allah? Dawaf. So the, the, the act of ibadah that's the most specific to the Kaaba is mentioned first. Then the act that is happening at the Kaaba but happens elsewhere too. Then the act that's happening at the Kaaba but happens much more elsewhere, ruku' and finally sujood. So there's this sequence, in, it's a quantitative kind of sequence even. And you know, in specialization, it's from, from khas to am really. Very specific to the Kaaba to just more general and more general and more general. Anyhow, so وَرُكَعِ sujood. وَإِذْ قَالَ Ibrahim. And then when Ibrahim salam said, well Ibrahim salam already said, he said, قَالَ وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِي he said before, what about my children? Now Ibrahim salam is speaking again. But now when he's speaking, it's after he's been commanded. He's been commanded to purify Allah's house. And obviously it's understood he's engaged in that activity. And as he's engaged in that activity, what does he, what does he say to Allah? رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا بَلَدًا آمِنًا My master, make this a peaceful city. Make this, meaning Mecca, a peaceful city. وَرْزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ And provide its children from all kinds of fruit. Thamarat. Two things he asked for. The one thing he asked for was peace, and the other thing he asked for was fruit. You can call it prosperity. Peace and prosperity. Even if you do a PhD in political science study, you'll find for a functioning society, they need two things. What two things do they need? You know, they, they need peace. Your, your, your money should be safe, your life should be safe, your home should be safe, your business should be safe, your savings should be safe. 
safety is very important in a society. But if safety is all there is and there are no jobs, and there's no, there's no way to make money, then you're going to have chaos in society. That safety is no good. So you need peace and you need prosperity. Prosperity alone is not enough and peace alone is not enough. He understands that complex con- concept, alayhi salam. And he's looking at this desert. At the time he's building this house, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. But he understands if this is going to be a peaceful place, and this is going to be a sustained place, then two things are important ingredients in the, in the sustainability of this place. Peace and prosperity. SubhanAllah. You know, when we think, you know, when, when we think of the Prophets ﷺ, we don't think of them as planners, city planners, administrators. We don't think of them as, you know, people that would, would think that in this far and wide and, and, and far-reaching sense. But this is the genius of Ibrahim ﷺ. First he thought about the future generations, then he even thought about where, how they're going to live. In the political sense, in the economic sense, in the social sense. وَرْزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ السَّمَرَاتِ مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ Provide peace and prosperity essentially to those who believe in Allah and the last day. He put a condition. شَرْط مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ well, Why did he put this condition? Allah told him when he said, Why don't you save all my children? What did Allah say to him? My promise is not guaranteed for who? For wrongdoers. So he knows some of my kids will be wrongdoers. And he also knows the wrongdoers are the ones who are a threat to peace and a threat to prosperity. So I would rather they starve. I would rather this peace and prosperity be only for who? Of my children, those who believe in Allah and the last day. Here's something else we understand of the genius of Ibrahim is the concept of responsibility. He does not want to be responsible on judgment day for generation after generation of wrongdoers. And how, will he, how do you know that generations won't survive? Well, if they don't have peace and prosperity, they won't survive. But he wants his believing children to enjoy generation after generation. So he says, only give these two things that guarantee sustainability to my believing generations. Now, how does Allah respond? He said, even the one who disbelieved, قَلِيلًا I will let him enjoy and utilize a bit too. I'll give him some also. In other words, yes, I'll provide your believing children, but I'm not completely denying your disbelieving children either. Your, their generations will continue too. And of course, an example of disbelieving generations continuing is who? Among the children of Ibrahim alayhi salam, it's like the, the Quraysh. Disbelievers continuing, mushrikun continuing, even though they were wrongdoers. So their generations continued. Then I'll drag him to the fire of hell and what a, you know, what a fi- the, 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 the punishment of the fire and what a horrible place that is. In other words, Allah told him very explicitly, don't think that the wrongdoers are just going to disappear. They're going to stay too among your children. And, I, and their place will be held. So it's a very kind of stern answer. And you would think, after this stern answer, Ibrahim would say, I get the message, I should stop asking now. You know, when you hear an answer like that, you, you figure, okay, you know what, I'm not going to ask anymore. No, no, no. Ibrahim doesn't stop there. He keeps asking. What, what, and part of the genius of Ibrahim is, every time Allah says something, He modifies His prayer. So He says, okay, now Allah told me that's not going to work. So I'll, I need to work with that and adjust the dua I'm going to make and come up with something that will work. So he keeps thinking about how, what more can I ask Allah and how can I get my dua answered. But you will notice in every one of his duas, one thing is clear. One of the great legacies of Ibrahim we forget. You know what's clear in all of this? The primary concern is not himself. What's the primary concern? His future generations. Constantly, every one of his duas is something about the future.
Every one of them. Peace and prosperity. Not for him. He's, he doesn't even see a city there. He sees a desert there. Even the next dua that's coming when he asks for a messenger, he himself is a messenger. Who's he asking a messenger for? Future generations. Future generations. And what's beautiful about this passage is, as soon as this passage is done, Allah starts talking about, you know, even Yaqub as a father. Also one concerned with future generations. That's a, that's a, just a continuous discussion in this part of Surah Al-Baqarah. It's a very, very beautiful thing. It's something that all fathers, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a course on fatherhood in the Qur'an, read this passage in Baqarah. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place in the Qur'an. Just uh, in, the, in the 120s in Surah Al-Baqarah. Just read through it and you'll just appreciate a gem, just a treasure that's waiting for all of us. May Allah Azza wa help us take guidance from this beautiful book. And may, may He give us the ability to implement the wisdom that was implemented by the Prophet ﷺ. And may Allah give the fathers of our community the ability to really be fathers as they should be. Barakallahu li wa lakum. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa Ibrahim. And then when Ibrahim salam said, well, Ibrahim salam already said, he said, qala wa min He said before, what about my children? Now Ibrahim salam is speaking again. But now when he's speaking, it's after he's been commanded. He's been commanded to purify Allah's house. And obviously it's understood he's engaged in that activity. And as he's engaged in that activity, what, is he, what does he say to Allah? رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا بَلَدًا آمِنًا My master, make this a peaceful city. Make this, meaning Mecca, a peaceful city. وَرْزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ And provide its children from all kinds of fruit. الثَّمَرَات Two things he asked for. The one thing he asked for was peace. And the other thing he asked for was fruit. You can call it prosperity. Peace and prosperity. Even if you do a PhD in political science study, you'll find for a functioning society, they need two things. What two things do they need? You know, they, they need peace. Your, your, your money should be safe, your life should be safe, your home should be safe, your business should be safe, your savings should be safe. Safety is very important in a society. But if safety is all there is and there are no jobs, and there's no, there's no way to make money, then you're going to have chaos in society. That safety is no good. So you need peace and you need prosperity. Prosperity alone is not enough and peace alone is not enough. He understands that complex con- concept, alayhi salam. And he's looking at this desert. At the time he's building this house, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. But he understands if this is going to be a peaceful place, and this is going to be a sustained place, then two things are important ingredients in the, in the sustainability of this place. Peace and prosperity. SubhanAllah. You know, when we think, you know, when, when we think of the Prophet ﷺ, we don't think of them as planners. City planners, administrators. We don't think of them as, you know, people that would, would think that in this far and wide and, and, and far-reaching sense. But this is the genius of Ibrahim First he thought about the future generations, then he even thought about where, how they're going to live. In the political sense, in the economic sense, in the social sense. وَرْزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ السَّمَرَاتِ مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ Provide peace and prosperity essentially to those who believe in Allah and the last day. He put a condition. شَرْط مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ بِاللَّهِ why did he put this condition? Allah told him when he said, Why don't you save all my children? What did Allah say to him? My promise is not guaranteed for who? For wrongdoers. So he knows some of my kids will be wrongdoers. And he also knows the wrongdoers are the ones who are a threat to peace and a threat to prosperity. So I would rather they starve. I would rather this peace and prosperity be only for who? Of my children, those who believe in Allah and the last day. Here's something else we understand of the genius of Ibrahim is the concept of responsibility. He does not want to be responsible on judgment day for generation after generation of wrongdoers. 
And how, will he, how do you know that generations won't survive? Well, if they don't have peace and prosperity, they won't survive. But he wants his believing children to enjoy generation after generation. So he says, only give these two things that guarantee sustainability to my believing generations. Now, how does Allah respond? قَالَ وَمَنْ كَفَرَ He said, even the one who disbelieved, فَأُمَتِّعُهُ قَلِيلًا I will let him enjoy and utilize a bit too. I'll give him some also. In other words, yes, I'll provide your believing children, but I'm not completely denying your disbelieving children either. Your, their generations will continue too. And of course, an example of disbelieving generations continuing is who? Among the children of Ibrahim alayhi salam, it's like the, the Quraysh. Disbelievers continuing, mushrikun continuing, even though they were wrongdoers. So their generations continued. Then I'll drag him to the fire of hell and what a, you know, what a the, the, the punishment of the fire and what a horrible place that is. In other words, Allah told him very explicitly, don't think that the wrongdoers are just going to disappear. They're going to stay too among your children. And, I, and their place will be held. So it's a very kind of stern answer. And you would think, after this stern answer, Ibrahim alayhi salam say, I get the message, I should stop asking now. You know, when you hear an answer like that, you, you figure, okay, you know what, I'm not going to ask anymore. No, no, no. Ibrahim alayhi salam doesn't stop there. He keeps asking. What, what, and part of the genius of Ibrahim alayhi salam is, every time Allah says something, He modifies His prayer. So He says, okay, now Allah told me that's not going to work. So I'll, I need to work with that and adjust the dua I'm going to make, and come up with something that will work. So he keeps thinking about how, what more can I ask Allah, and how can I get my dua answered. But you will notice in every one of his duas, one thing is clear. One of the great legacies of Ibrahim Islam we forget. You know what's clear in all of this? The primary concern is not himself. What's the primary concern? His future generations. Constantly, every one of his duas is something about the future. Every one of them. Peace and prosperity. Not for him. He's, he doesn't even see a city there. He sees a desert there. Even the next dua that's coming when he asks for a messenger, he himself is a messenger. Who's he asking a messenger for? Future generations. Future generations. And what's beautiful about this passage is, as soon as this passage is done, Allah starts talking about, you know, even Yaqub as a father. Also one concerned with future generations. That's a, that's a, just a continuous discussion in this part of Surah Al-Baqarah. It's a very, very beautiful thing. It's something that all fathers, you know, if you're, if you're looking for a course on fatherhood in the Qur'an, read this passage in Baqarah. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place in the Qur'an. It's just uh, in, the, in the 120s in Surah Al-Baqarah. Just read through it and you'll just appreciate a gem, just a treasure that's waiting for all of us. May Allah Azza wa help us take guidance from this beautiful book. And may, may He give us the ability to implement the wisdom that was implemented by the Prophet And may Allah give the fathers of our community the ability to really be fathers as they should be. Barakallahu li wa alaikum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.